Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I I think this is so key. Like, I think we've been taught like, oh, you got to focus, focus, focus. I think that's the wrong thing. You got to kind of list the things you love doing. Try to get pretty good at all of them. Yeah. And see what's in the middle. Be good at something. Mix it with something else you're good at. And then you are the best at that. You have to figure out ways to literally skip the line. And and sometimes you can do that with money. Sometimes you can do that through connections, uh, sometimes through circumstance. So like if you're an athlete uh, and it just so happens your next door neighbor is destined to be a Hall of Fame football player, you're probably going to skip the line in some way just by practicing with that person every day. Mm. Um, and like you said, um, to have a to be unaware, to almost hypnotize yourself into being unaware of what, of how poorly you can be. Yeah. You know. Maybe hypnosis. Maybe hypnosis works. Yeah. That, that's interesting because I've experimented recently. I have this joke where part of it is I want to take my daughter to Auschwitz and and some of the audience sometimes the audience gasps a little because if you bring it up yeah yeah and i and i obviously am jewish or look jewish whatever so usually i get away but now i've switched it to she asks to go to auschwitz mm-hmm. and it's just much better i i have an auschwitz story from when i i went because i went um i was in poland doing improv teaching improv and performing an improv festival and we were like so we're only here for two days what do we got to do and they were like you got to go and see Auschwitz and we were like it's me and my, my three best friends who improvised together and I was like obviously of course we have to go there cool so we'll do that tomorrow and they're like oh you won't have time tomorrow you have to go now we're like but our show is tonight and they're like yeah you have to go though we're like but we can't go to Auschwitz and do a show like we're gonna be like sad and they're like but you have to go we're like I guess we have to go so yeah we're not gonna get a chance to go again soon so we'll go and you go there and like you know it's incredibly affecting and um I was, it was very cold. I was wearing a big coat and a rabbit fur hat and tried to tell this story on stage. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work at all. But at the time, it was the funniest thing that's ever had happened for ages. I, 
I was wearing this very warm rabbit fur hat, like Russian army surplus. I guess I looked funny, but like, obviously everything is, and this is in Birkenau, not, you know, in Auschwitz. So it's even more quiet and somber. And we walk through one of the kind of shacks. And as we come out, a group of school kids are like walking in and they see me and one just starts laughing and it triggers all of them. And they're just pointing and laughing at this silly man in a silly hat. And I'm like indignant, like, this is how you can't laugh here. This is a, uh, it made it seem like I had deliberately worn a funny hat being like, hey, let's be. And the, the reason, I think the reason I can't remember, I can never figure out how to tell, like convey how funny it was because to them it broke tension. To me, I was like, this, we, no, we should, this is a memorial. We should be tolerant. We should, you know, res be respectful. And they're just laughing at my friends like, but you okay, so, but that's funny. interesting though, because that that is an interesting story. And what you're recording this, right? What would it take to make that? Because I find something could be really well written, something could be a great story. But with comedy, there's that extra stretch where you need, you know, tension and then a punchline to release it. Yeah, roughly. Exactly. You know, there's no real formula, but that's a common formula, the most common formula. So, what would be a way to transform that story? into something you can do on stage and then I'll properly introduce you. <laughs> <laughs> I hope this isn't the intro. Um, well, that's it. So one, I'm not even trying to turn that into a bit because I'm like, oh, that's, it was funny in the moment, but the funniest thing in the moment that happened to me recently was something my wife said to me. And I was like, I'm content for that never to be a story on stage, despite the fact that every time I remember it, because she said it in a certain place and I walk past that place a lot, I laugh. But I don't think I could convey how that was funny. In the same way, I can't, how can you transport an audience to that place in time and in your head and be like, because if, if you were there, you would have laughed, right? Because all these kids were laughing. I don't know. So yeah, I'm not trying to make that funny. And well, I... Birkenau is where Victor Frankl wrote Man's Search for Meaning. Is that right, Steve? I believe so, yeah. So, so uh, you know, maybe there's something like you, you knew it was going to be so sad for these kids that, you're, that you wanted to give them meaning. <laughs> And me, <laughs> yeah, I was like, you should which, have met any which place. Hat shall I wear? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I, the, I don't know. <laughs> the other thing is, uh, is that, and this is now how I use it, is that Auschwitz and presumably Birkenau is reviewed on Google Maps. No, so he, like, Frank Auschwitz was Auschwitz. Hmm? Frank was Auschwitz. I thought he moved around. Because I mean, Auschwitz and Auschwitz Birkenau. The difference is, like, I mean, if people know this, stop me. Auschwitz was the Polish barracks that they converted but it wasn't a death camp to the extent that Birkenau was. Like Birkenau was once they started building the chambers and the shower, like Auschwitz had a chamber, but it was like the chambers at Birkenau are all rubbled and they destroyed them to hide the, you know, the crimes. But that, Auschwitz is like a museum. That's where you go and you see the rooms full of shoes and huh. the glasses. Um, Birkenau is like, there's nothing there telling you about it. You just go there and it's like the train tracks and the, the crematorium rubble. And they just say, this is the memorial. This is, you just walk around this and feel. And like, it does, it like gets in your bones because you can, it's, you can feel it. Okay, punchline. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just yeah, because me, the, you know, incredibly <laughs> Protestant white guy here is the guy to make those jokes. So, so okay, so I'll, I'll do an intro. First off, Chris, thanks for, Coming on such short notice. No, no, thank uh, you so much. This yeah, is a, a privilege and a pleasure. You have a, a very unique, and I'm going to call it skill, in the, and it's very unique in, I feel, on the comedy stage. Uh, and that's, I, I won't describe it exactly yet, but um, essentially 
you were, you took two skills that you probably are good at. Maybe you're great at, I don't know how you would describe yourself, but definitely the combination of those two skills, you're probably the best in the world right now. I will say that. That's super kind. And I think that is very much how I approach it. Um, in the find your niche and make it so selective that if anyone's like, by making it so specific, you can be the best in the world at it. It's a very smart idea, and, actually. And this combined, I mean, and this has been a, a, a common theme among people who are peak performers in, in every area. So you, t you take a look at um, the, the Olympics. Oh, uh, well, no, I, I won't use that one. But uh, you, you basically take a look at, uh, we, we had somebody on the other day who was studied as a scientist, but was really into sports and became the fastest uh, promoted writer at Sports Illustrated because he was able to write scientifically about sports. Yeah. So when you take, and we've had a lot of people talk about, uh, Scott Adams talks about the talent stack. Uh, uh, Scott Adams is the, the author of the cartoon Dilbert. And he says, oh, wow. I'm not the funniest guy in the world. I'm not the best drawer in the world. I'm not the best businessman in the world. But when you combine all three, I'm probably the best or one of the best cartoonists in the world. Mm -hmm. And and so, okay, I'll let you describe your two, those two skills. Okay. And- uh, so I am a, a stand-up comedian who pulls freestyle raps out of the ether. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I freestyle rap. So I make up raps, songs, uh, rhymes on the spot by taking, my standard is taking suggestions from an audience, taking five suggestions usually. Um, and then, and these will be wide, wildly disparate, esoteric suggestions. Sometimes they'll also be very mundane ones, depending on the audience. And I will in, instantaneously construct a song out of them. And I think when you mix it all together with the stand-up, because I'm a stand-up comedian first, but I've been freestyle rapping longer. So I think that's, and I would say I'm a good stand-up comedian, but I am a great freestyle rapper. Yeah, so I've heard you say you've been freestyle rapping since I was 12, which is 18 years. Yeah, so 18 years. Yeah. And you've been doing stand up comedy professionally for about, about six or seven? About professionally, about six or seven, but I started 10 years ago. So I think my first gig was the day after Michael Jackson died. So I was at university. Did you make fun of that? <laughs> um, I So I knew that everyone would be doing Michael Jackson jokes. I just knew. And so I my whole set was based around the fact I went up and I said, hey, I, I don't know about you guys. I, I'm a huge Michael Jackson fan. I grew up with his music. I used to dance to him. I used to sing all the words. I remember watching every video in front of my TV. And um, so I, I don't feel comfortable making any references to Michael Jackson tonight. So They probably clap know. right then. And it's a clap yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I take my pocket out of my hand to pick up the microphone. I have one white glove on. <laughs> <laughs> and it got a real good laugh in my memory. And then the rest of the set was just a normal set. But that was it. And I just made no other reference. And, and that, obviously that joke, so that was my opener for my first gig. And then it never worked again because my next gig was like three months later. My next gig was three months after that. And 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 with stand-up comedy, you started off doing a lot of, or it seems like you started off doing a lot of like one-liners. One-liners, yeah. For my first, which is a very difficult thing to do, by the way. Yeah, yeah. That was my first two years. And it's interesting because I have this video of me doing it that's like, that was my first kind of video with big hits on YouTube. And people occasionally will be like, hey, post some more one-liner stuff, some more deadpan stuff. And I'm like, I did that for about 25 gigs. My first year of stand-up, I did maybe 15 to 20 shows. And then I found it so limiting to just do one-liners. Um, and I spoke to 
you know, comedian, because so few people do it, because it's, I think it's really hard, not yeah. writing jokes, sustaining an audience's interest for longer than 10 or 15 minutes of that. Like Stephen Wright can do it, but he does one special every 10 years or whatever. Well, well that's what I was going to say. Can Stephen Wright do it? Like, can you listen to an hour? If you weren't a comedian, mm. can you listen to an hour of Stephen Wright doing one-liners? I would rather listen to an hour of Mitch Hedberg do one-liners. But then Mitch Hedberg has a character. It's yeah. not as deadpan. But what happened was like, because if, if you think about like Anthony Jeselnik, his first album is pretty much just one-liners and he he carries that. But then as he's done more, he loosens up and they're not one-liners anymore. They're kind of stories in the sense that he'll like tease it out for a minute and then hit you with a punchline. Right, like I think, I think, uh, and I know we're getting into the, the weeds of this, but I think with Anthony Jeselnik, you're right, he's telling a story. And part one of the story is he's a hero. And part two of the story, which is the next part of the single sentence, mm -hmm. part two of the story is he's the worst villain yeah. ever. Yeah. But because he starts off at the hero and he has this likable tone, he's able to get away with it and he's likable. Whereas, and... I'm not saying Stephen Wright's not likable. It's just a different style. It's he just does these weird wordplay things that are very interesting. Yeah. So I asked a comedian called Gary Delaney, who's very popular in the UK and very talented one-liner comedian. I said, Gary, I, I'm, I'm struggling because I was, I was doing middle spots, which in the UK is where you put the new acts rather than over here. It usually goes, you know, your opener, then your feature, then your headliner in experience. But in the UK, the middle act is the greenest act because that's the easiest bit of the show because we have intervals as well so people get more drunk but not too drunk and so they'd put you on and do 10 minutes and in a 10 minute set with my one-liners I, I could have a really good set um and then they were like hey do you want to open so i started doing 15 to 20 to open this is quite soon on as well uh, in my career and i just struggled because the, the MC will be like, hey, you guys ready for a night of comedy? Well, please welcome Chris Turner. And I'd walk out and I'd get a laugh from like the change of energy from like being this sour faced, like young baby faced boy. And then I would tell some jokes and for five minutes it would go well. And then it would just be a struggle. And, you know, this is also down to the fact maybe my quality of jokes wasn't as consistent, right? Because I, I went quite quickly to opening, but I just really struggled. And I asked Gary, I was like, how do I deal with this? And he was like, oh yeah, this is what I struggled with for three years when I started out. And then I realized you just have to lighten up. And he used to be really deadpan. And then he just became cheery. He would smile and laugh at his jokes and it would just be way better. The audience was like, oh, he's just cracking jokes. It's like Tim Vine, who's, you know, big one-liner comic in the UK. He just does puns and he laughs at his own jokes and you see him going, these are stupid jokes. Um, he mixes up with songs. It's... You have to provide some variety, I think, because otherwise just joke, 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 joke. One, they figure out the structure eventually, which is why Jezenik's very good because you never can yeah, figure out what the punchline is or where the twist is coming. Right. I love in this uh, last special how he breaks it up in the middle and he says, okay, enough's enough. Yeah, I'm going to paraphrase him, but he says, enough's enough. It's time to speak truth to power. You know, <laughs> And then he goes into this whole thing about how great it is to drop babies. Yeah. And it's just... It's just funny the way he's, you know, it's always about surprise. And yeah, of course uh, it is. even a one-liner, you can you can surprise somebody by by the end of the sentence. And I find them to be hard to write. Like I like, my background is as a writer, so I like writing stories. And then when I started doing stand-up, it became really hard to tell stories because you could write a great story that's beautiful and impactful and say something interesting. But then to turn it into comedy, it's like we were talking earlier, there's that next step of, finding 
the the punchline, the reversal, yeah. the whatever rule of comedy or theory of comedy you want to use, it's that extra step to keep it interesting and impactful, but then do something co comedic with it. Yeah, I think I, I, a lot of people I talk to about that because I'm experimenting with like much longer stories for a show I'm writing at the moment, like 10 minute bits. And I asked people and they were like, oh, you need to know the punchline and the punchline needs to be strong enough for you to work towards it. It's like, know what you're out of the story is. And that's interesting because that's what I used to do when I'd, I would write routines. I would, I'd find a joke in that routine that was the strongest one. And I'd go, I know I have an outline, as in like an, a line to get out on. And then when you were trying new material with those stories, you always knew even if a bit died, you could still get out on that joke. Um, I think with the one line as well, I kind of, this is an interesting thing to me was when I, so I started when I was at university and I, I was working really hard. Like I really wanted to do well in my degree. I, I did archaeology and anthropology at Oxford. I wanted to like do justice to that because that was like a, a big deal for like anyone to go to like that university, but also my like my family like my mum had studied um she was a physiotherapist so she'd been to like nursing and like but not medical school but she you know she had like a qualification but I was like the first person from my family to go to university in that sense and my tutor had said you could be great at this you could be like you'll get a first you're smart you could do well but I immediately discovered improv I then spent a year doing that and I loved it I then started doing stand-up in my second year and I found it really easy to write jokes because my brain was, you have to write two and a half essays a week at Oxford, for at least in my course, which is like, it's a lot. With the amount of reading and citations and lectures, and it's why there are only eight-week terms, which might sound crazy to American students, but you do three eight-week terms. And so half a year, more than half a year is holidays, which is great, but they give you work in that. And so my and brain- you graduate in three years, which is great. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, and- my brain was working so hard for those eight weeks that anytime it wasn't working on essays, it would just spit out jokes. And I always found this weird. I was like, this place in time in my life, for those two years I was doing stand-up and my degree, I just churned out jokes. And like, I have jokes that I still do now. And I have jokes that I class as like the best jokes I've ever written are from that period. And they're jokes that like people will comment on my youtube videos going you stole these jokes i've seen these jokes before and i'm like yeah because these jokes are great jokes that then i got texted them by people i had friends text like hey you'll like this one I'm like that's my joke um and it's like about when i used to put jokes on twitter and then i stopped because again they kept getting stolen there was a guy in dubai my friend was doing a show he's like hey you know this guy here just does your set and i was like can you tell him to stop and then she told him and the guy was like oh i'd love to book you to come and do these gigs you know they love your comedy down here you've just done my all my jokes. There's nothing I have. And apparently he was butchering the jokes as well. Um, but my when I graduated, and by then I'd, I'd already switched to less one-linery and more just friendly. And I'd kind of started telling a few stories. And this is before I even started ending with a freestyle on my set. My brain just stopped turning out those jokes and then just kind of kicked down to a more normal pace where like every couple of weeks I'll go, Oh, that's a good idea for a joke. Whereas back then it was like, if I, if I didn't have like a good joke every day, because I wouldn't sit down and write, they'd just pop out because your brain's doing stuff when it's not, you know, when you're not working on the essay, it would just blah, 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 blah. And they well, why would they go in that direction? Like other people's brains don't always do that. I don't, And this yeah. is going to relate later to your freestyle my, rap, my maybe. stupid brain that uh, <laughs> I can't explain. Yeah, I... Because there's a particular skill to a one-liner. Like 
people think like, oh, those are the the easy jokes, the dad jokes, you know, they're called, but they're not. Like a mm. good one-liner, it's like almost impossible to write. Yeah, yeah. Like how would, how would they just pop into your head fully formed? Generally or? fully formed. And I would write them down in notebooks. And What was like the structure of a good one-liner for you? Like how would you know this is good? I think there's a, a way, if you can phrase it, like, because most one-liners, a lot of them, not all of them, because the best ones tend not to be. A lot of them are puns. If it's a pun that you can say without getting a groan, that's a good one. And that usually is because the punchline is not the pun. The pun is the setup. So they never see the pun coming. So like I had a joke, which was fun because I wrote in a, a notebook during this period. They never told it on stage for about two years because um, my then girlfriend was reading my notebooks and was like, hey, this is a joke I've not heard before. This is really funny. And I was like, what are you on about? That's trash. And she was like, try on stage. I told on stage. And then it became my closing joke for ages. And the, the joke is, I bought a laminator. It's a machine that kills baby sheep. And it, it works because I'm not going, I got a machine that kills baby sheep. It's a laminator. That gets you a groan, right? They're like, oh. oh, you tricked us. Whereas if you go, I bought a laminator, they're like, yeah, we know what that is. When you say something different, it's purely that. They're just like, wait, what? <laughs> Laughter because they, you know, were surprised. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. So reversing, um, you know, again, reversing the pun with put the, the pun in the setup. Yeah. I mean, but then again, like there's a joke I'm doing at the moment where I put the pun in the punchline and it works because I've not done any other puns throughout the show. So I'm like, I'm taking a break from karate lessons. It's a hiatus. Now, I think that's funny actually because. I'm not a physical comedian. And when I, if I'm on stage, I'll be like, hiatus. Right. So part uh, of the laugh there is the delivery. Yeah. And also I kind of be like, hey, I like dumb jokes. You know, dumb jokes. And I'll just do that. I'm like, that's the one dumb joke you get. You know, one pun people let you get away with. And I, doing... think, I think particularly if you either ask for permission or acknowledge it afterwards. Yeah. Because then they're like, okay, that was funny. We're, we're going to, we don't like to laugh at this, but we're going to because he just invited us yeah. to. Yeah. I think, I think that's true. Which is, if you're talking about, certain subjects like i saw um dina hashem at the comedy cellar she's an awesome comic and she has this bit where she just goes um she's like i i kind of want to do an abortion joke but i kind of worry you guys are going to get upset and i've seen her do that twice and both times the audience like guys and girls will be like no and cheer and be like no we're fine with that and then she goes okay so you can't you can't get upset at this and then she'll do it and the thing is it's a great joke like it it, it kills um but that's such a smart way of doing it because you're it, like, no, we want to hear it. It's smart too, because there's something called, um, oh, I want to say it's not true. There's a cognitive bias where if you allow them to choose, they now have a cognitive bias. Like their, their brain is saying, I am the type of person who allows this comedian to do abortion jokes. So they feel almost, their brain feels obligated to mm. laugh at it as well. Yeah. So, so they almost have to laugh. So, so I, I find that to be a useful technique to, to ask permission or give when people- When you want to tell all your abortion jokes. Hmm? Well, <laughs> I, I ask permission before a, a bad joke. Yeah. So for instance, if um, there was one comedy club that was being sponsored by an erectile dysfunction company mm -hmm. and I had a quote unquote dad joke, a bad joke about ED. Yeah. And I said, I have a joke for this. I said, I'm obligated to say something because it's a sponsor of the club but I need consent for you, for, for me to, I need your consent for me to tell this joke. And then I tell the worst 
joke possible yeah. about ED, but they all laugh because they, they're the ones who asked me to tell the joke. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's, you do a form of this, of, of course, in your freestyle rap where you're asking the audience for all the words. So, so a, they know that the, their viewers know that you're not just, this isn't pre-prepared. You don't have plans or whatever. And well, you'd be surprised how many comments they got on YouTube of people who refuse to believe it's real. I think when you don't see it live, it's it's yeah. a little more distance. So then they kind of figure out what's the scam here. Yeah, they're trying to pick it apart. They like, think I'm I, a mastermind. I, of... I have four daughters, and I showed all four of them your stuff, and you. each one of them said something, some variation of he must have pre-planned that, or or he must have had all the secondary you know, lines that don't mention the topics. Yeah, pre people, people think I'm like fitting it into a pre-structured thing, which is assigning a work ethic to me that I do not possess. Like, okay, he's preparing all these things every day for three shows a night, all these different raps. When people think I'm paying people, they're like, he's paid all these people to come along. And I'm like- Because like, you're, you're a millionaire comedian. Yeah, and, and I- At 27. Yeah, the the, the thing with like, um, people go like, oh, it's just, yeah, I don't believe it. I'm like, how dare you think that if you think this is written and you think this is the best I can write, I will direct you to my written work, which is far, you know, denser and stuff. But then again, I don't really write raps because there's way, there's so many rappers who are much better than me at rapping, writing, flowing. It's just, I'm good at freestyling. So that's why I stick to that. People are like, when are you going to put out a written record? I'm like, when I have something of importance to say. Well, okay, that's another interesting thing, which I'll I'll, I'll ask in a bit about um, importance. But it it's so interesting, you know. You 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 basically you you have a comedic routine getting into the freestyle rap. You ask everybody for uh, you ask each part of the you divide the audience essentially into five parts, and you ask them each for a word, and then you you put together this amazing rap on the fly that actually does sound good enough to be something I would listen to on a, a record. This is this is a fun thing. So Tuesday, this so we're with Thursday now. Two days ago, I was in Detroit and it was the Forbes 30 Under 30 conference, which I was performing at because the guy who runs it had seen me in New York at the Soho Playhouse do my one-man show about two months ago. And on the way out, he's like, here's my card, call me. I call him, he's like, hey, I run this conference. I was like, oh, cool. He's like, yeah, it's in Detroit. It's the Forbes 30 Under 30. I was like, oh, that sounds cool. He's like, yeah. What day do you want to do? We can put you on this day or this day. Or we can put you on um, with Kevin Durant and Quavo from Migos, uh, who to people who may not know Migos, they're a you know, Atlanta rap trio who are you know one of the best selling and you know, number ones getting rap groups. And I'll assume everyone knows who Kevin Durant is because you know Kevin. Durant. Actually, I don't know. Is he a basketball Ke player? Kevin Durant is like yeah, he's okay. like one of the I mean one of the richest basketball players was with the um, with Golden State. I think, and then is now with the Brooklyn Nets, currently injured, but very, um, uh, you know, very talented uh, and very good and very nice. And he, so he's on, he finishes, he goes off, and then they award 250K to a startup. And then the guy goes, and now, you know, blah, 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 brings me on. And aside from all that, the set, the set went really well. It was lovely. It was really nice. Uh, but Quavo turns up during my set and goes to his dressing room and his people, uh, his uh, his entourage, I was told this afterwards with the sound guy, they come up to him and they're like, hey man, can you play some some of Quavo's music out there? And they went, went, this is a live performance. And they're like, what? He's like, yeah, this is a live performance. They're like, someone's rapping now? Because they were just hearing the rap from backstage. And they're like, this isn't a track. 
they go out and look and then they came back to him going no fucking way no yeah. no way is he doing that, that and, the guy, what... and the guy's like no no it's, it's just free strawberries like he's making it up and so the, i was like so flattered like oh like these this entourage thought they were playing a track that was written and it was like yeah i mean i'm sure they weren't listening to it that well right it's just background music but i was like yeah this this sounds like it's you know <laughs> written but but the thing is and we'll we'll maybe i don't know are you able to to do a rap we oh could, sure yeah so but so so okay so we'll, we'll hold off of that in a second it sounds so good i'm not even trying to be complimentary it's like compare like Eminem in the movie Eight Mile, mm -hmm. and we're told when we watch this movie that this is the pinnacle of freestyling. They're struggling with the words, They're, and yeah. it doesn't really sound great. You sound so fluid when you're freestyling, and Thank you're you. also taking these these disparate images, like the the Hindenburg toenails, quantum or the Doppler effect. That was a you know all in yeah. one rap. You know the Yuan again, all in one rap, and just seamlessly. Like, like for instance, with the Hindenburg, someone throws that out, and then in your rap, you're talking about I know the guy from Colorado Walter who's Dona. the last survivor. Like, like you yeah. happen to, you also know a lot of knowledge. Like your memory is, yeah. uh, it, in general, if someone said the Hindenburg to you, would you remember that, or is it is it another part of your brain that's getting activated that remembers so, yeah, these I, things? Yeah, that's it. That's, that's very smart. Um, yeah, it's not something I. This is why. So, anytime I freestyle on a podcast or on a radio show, it's usually inferior to the live ones because. There is zero adrenaline right now. I mean, obviously, yeah. I'm with you, so yeah. you know, adrenaline. But um, on stage, there's the probability of it failing. Now, yeah, you can do it on a podcast, and many people will listen to it, but they're not here, right? There's no crowd to entertain. There's no, you know, there's no stakes in a sense. Like if I did a freestyle with you and it sucked, I would say you can't release it. So listen out, guys. Right. Right. Or um, you can say I'll try it again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but live, you can't do that. Like if it sucked, then oh, that'd be horrible. Um, so the brain, my brain, I think yeah, I can't. If you oh, this one guy was like, okay, rap about the Cleveland Browns. I was like, cool. Um, what else should we rap about? And this guy was like, no, just the Cleveland Browns. Now I can't rap about the Cleveland Browns for three minutes. I don't, I didn't even really know what that was. <laughs> and then he starts the beat and I was in full on panic mode. This is on a radio show, full on panic mode. And my brain is just like, don't worry, I got you. And it just pulled out reams of knowledge about the Cleveland Browns who I had no idea I'd ever read anything about, I'd heard about. And your brain's just like, no, you know all these things. You've seen all these things about them. You know, they've just gone through the season losing every game. And you know this player's name. I couldn't tell you those things now. Um, and I guess that, you know, in the months preceding that I had happened across something about the Cleveland Browns. Like I, I read the news pretty much every day. I scroll through the internet. I watch videos. Someone tweeted me yesterday being like, oh my God, I've been watching your videos. And then you rapped about BTS. I can't believe you knew about BTS, the the Korean boy band. And people were like, commenting, being like, yeah, I know. How does he know about these things? I'm like, yeah, how do I know about BTS? I mean, yeah. obviously they're a cultural phenomenon, but I knew enough that fans of theirs heard the rap and weren't like, screw you, you don't know anything about them. They were like, wow, he knows the name of their songs and stuff. Yeah, like that. that's part of the impressive part in these raps. Like that one you have up there that has now uh, 4 million views or close to 4 million views, you, you talk about the Doppler effect, which if I had to describe the Doppler effect, I wouldn't be able to describe it as lucidly as you did in the middle <laughs> of that rap. You talk about 
I write about cryptocurrencies. You explained it pretty big Bitcoin, Ethereum. You know, you describe you describe the risks. There's enough stuff. The, in then the, the yuan. Then uh, you know, it's, it was it was so interesting. But okay, I want to get into almost. I want to break down almost everything you just said. Yeah. And this is really about how to develop a skill hmm. that stands above the rest. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. My wife tells me this all the time. I'm ready for a scent upgrade. Are you longing for a cologne that makes you stand out from the crowd in a good way? We all know smelling good is important. If you're sitting around a bunch of people, you always know which person stands out in a bad way. And luckily, Hawthorne Cologne smells really, really good. But not just that. There's special technology happening here. Visit Hawthorne's website. Take a quick quiz and Hawthorne is going to let you know the two colognes that are best suited for you. One for work and one for play. Cologne that is perfectly and uniquely matched to your lifestyle. It's really just that easy. Personalized cologne in two minutes. Plus, Hawthorne offers additional personalized products like deodorant, shampoo, body wash. Hawthorne is totally risk-free, offering both free shipping and free returns. Show them you care this Valentine's Day with a set of curated products from Hawthorne. And listen, they give you this quiz on their site. That quiz is in-depth. I didn't. I've ne- I haven't taken a quiz like this since the SATs. It feels like you're really being taken care of by a personal skincare specialist. They ask you your skin type, your hair type, how often you shower. And then they give you a customized toiletry list. They tell you what cologne, soap, hair products, etc., are just for you, are perfect for you. It makes you feel like you have a personalized shopper. So now, check out Hawthorne at hawthorne.co and use my promo code JAMES to get 10% off your first purchase. That's Hawthorne, H-A-W-T-H-O-R-N-E dot C-O and use the promo code JAMES to get 10% off your purchase. Hawthorne.co. I want to break down almost everything you just said. And this is really about how to develop a skill that stands above the rest. Because, right, it's not like you're being the best tennis player in the world, but developing the skill, which like you said, you've been doing this for 18 years, developing the skill is so interesting and unique. It puts, and particularly combined with stand-up, it puts you in a unique spot, almost like if you were the best at some professional sport or activity or whatever. But, um, and, and I get why the Cleveland, just the Cleveland, I, I was thinking about this when watching a bunch of your uh, reps. It's sort of like you need the five or six items because, and, and, and on the one hand to the audience, it seems amazing. Like how is he even remembering five yeah. items? But again, the adrenaline must help. Yeah. And, I mean, sometimes and, I, do for, I do forget one of them and I just ask them, but that doesn't matter because I never, the rap is never prefaced and I'll remember all of them. Right. The rap is I'll rap about them. And I, well, I, I guess, I, I guess, really, just I wonder if you use some kind of like memory palace. Technique. No, I don't. I don't. Yeah, I, I should. People are like, oh, you do like memory pegging or all these things, or when you get the words, are you preparing lines or are you? No, and when I get the words, all I'm doing is like repeating them. I'm not thinking when I'm talking to the audience. I'm thinking about what jokes I can make. So if someone's like, oh, the Salem witch trials, I'm like, oh, how how can I make that funny? And in the moment, I can make a funny joke about that because comedy right i'm yeah. i'm used to improv 
But you'll see in the wraps, like what I'll do is my only memory thing is short-term memory for re- retaining the words. You can retain five, four or five things usually. Yeah. So I just repeat them each time. I'll be like, so we got this, this, and this. Let's get a new one. And then once I've got that, I'll go, so we got this, 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 and this. And I'll try and place them in the audience. But I'm not doing any of those, you know, like, oh, one is bun, two is shoe. So I picture the Hindenburg in a shoe and, you know, so, so toenail but, in a bun. Right. So, so, so that solves the memory problem. And then it helps. And people don't realize that the, the more topics the better because then you only have to give a couple of bars for each if, topic. If I want, yeah. And one, it's I find it interesting the topics I choose to start on because I don't know if there's a pattern that I do that with. May, often the most mundane one to me or the one I know the most about, I'll put first. I don't in my brain consciously order them either. Which I wish I did. I wish I was like, I know like last night someone says syphilis. I should have ended on syphilis. Now, that was the second thing, because for some reason, I had a nice link come up where I could bring in Tycho Brahe, who didn't have a nose, not due to syphilis, but I think he lost it in a duel. But I could still bring in the fact that, you know, there's this guy without a nose and then syphilis, you don't have a nose and all these things. So I it just I find the link and I jump to the next rung because I, I sometimes I watch my raps and I'm like, oh, why am I just going, OK, next up this topic? It's much funnier if I can bridge it without them knowing what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, but the first topic, usually people think is the one I've got stuff written about. They think they think that I've started with that because I know it. So I, I can't even think of an example because these raps are so ephemeral and they disappear out of my brain as soon as... Well, okay, the one that has close to 4 million views, toenails is, was... Am I starting with toenails? Okay, yeah. Mundane, boring. Anyone can rap about that. I don't know what I rapped about, like, Especially if I watch my clips back and I can tell what I'm going to say next about a thing, I usually won't put that video up because that means I wasn't in a flow state, right? Because hmm. if I'm in flow, it's not I'm not conscious of what I'm doing. And if if I can tell what I'm going to say next, then I'm like, oh, I'm predicting my next line. That means it was conscious, which is therefore it's not going to be as good quality. Uh, but so that's interesting that you that you're tying a flow state into this, which just getting into the flow state alone is is i guess a combination of the amount the sheer amount of practice and training and 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 studying of this that you did plus your improv plus the stand-up abilities uh so that allows you you have this great quote in an interview where it's getting you getting comfortable about living between the end of one bar and the beginning of the next yeah that's where the the space is so some i try to explain to someone on a youtube comment the other day um when I'm on stage, the adrenaline slows down time. So the space, I'm not thinking during the bar, I'm thinking between the bars. And that looks like a tiny second. But to me, it's very roomy. It's very like, like when I'm really in it, when I'm like, like last night, I, ha- I was so in it, it was great. And I was just like looking around inside being like, oh, what next? Where do I wanna go from here? Is this a nice way to take? No, I'll do this. And that's in the space of a word. And it's very hard to kind of explain that because it's, it's comfort is the word. Like I feel very comfortable on stage. But is that because in part, okay, you have a lot of experience on stage. So you've done this a lot before. So you have a kind of this internal confidence, but also since you were 12 years old, you probably had notebooks where you were just writing down rhymes. No. So I, this, I think this is why I'm so comfortable, like teaching freestyle or talking about it. Because some people ask, like, oh, aren't, aren't you worried that, like, someone will come and do your thing and, like, take it off you? And 
like obviously when you have like such a specific niche ideally people can't do that but because there are loads of freestyles in the world there are loads of freestyles who are very good there are freestylers who are better than me flow wise freestyles that are better than me delivery wise freestylers who like spit these authentic bars that are like so cool but part of my niche is that kind of intellectual approach which is like it's a very privileged position to be in because like i went to a great secondary school and i went to a great university and i had parents who encouraged me to learn and i had teachers that from the age of six set me extra work like hey you need to write me five pages on roman architecture like why are you asking a six-year-old to do that and it's because they were there was one teacher who was like you're smart and like i went to like not a bad school but like just a normal school where people didn't tend to go to university out of that primary school you know i was the second kid from that school to go to my secondary school um which is manchester grammar school which is a private school so you pay but it's a great school because it's an entrance exam if you pass the entrance exam and can't afford the school fees the school will pay for them for you like 50 percent of people that don't pay for their fees it was set up 500 years ago for that and i yeah. love them so much and performed at their 500th anniversary mm. dinner which was insane but my yeah my niche is i can make it intellectual someone can shout out something like last night someone's like the the plague and i've rapped about the plague of the 1600s before right and don't, so was, don't tell me you did the uh, albert camus novel no no i didn't no i didn't which would have been good actually um and annoyingly my wife who um grew in france was reading that just before i left the house so i should have known that um <laughs> And I, so I was like, I can't tell that suggestion, but would you allow me to rap about the uh, the plague of like 1348? I think this is probably people's gonna be Googling like, right, wrong. Um, and he was like, sure. And I was like, I obviously teased him. I was like, you didn't even know there was a plague then. He was like, no. I'm like, yeah, it's okay. It's a totally different rule. So um, I, I, can, I can rap about those things. Like people say, what happens if you don't know something? And I give them this, I give them two examples. One, like the Cleveland Brown example, someone went, I was at an oil and pipelines industries guild. So this is an example where they suggested something which I didn't know, but they all do. This guy goes, hexavalent chromium. And I, I was like, I was like, now obviously you all know what that is, and I don't. So that's a bit of a dick move. But I brought it on myself. Would you mind explaining it? And he went, he just went, no. <laughs> and I was like, okay, which again, I put my brain in a panic state. Somehow my brain spat out. I'm a big Steven Soderbergh fan. I've seen Aaron Brockovich. My brain was like, that's the poison in Aaron Brockovich. That's the huh. chemical poison in the water. So I do that. And Ashley was like, holy, how did you know that? And I'm like, boom, my, my brain picks up. The other one is when someone says something so specific. I mean, aside from the fact, if they say something very specific that I know, it seems great. Uh, a guy drove to Vegas last week to see me to say the suggestion, ancient Sumerian cuneiform texts. And... After the show, he was like, how did you even do that? I was like, I studied archaeology, watch more of my videos. I definitely tell jokes about that. I was like, he's like, I thought I'd get you. I'm like, what are you on about, mate? But this one time, this guy indignantly just went like, sack butt three, two. And I'll do a joke, right? If I don't know the suggestion and I'm confident other people don't know it, I'll go, obviously, I know what that is. But for the benefit of everyone else, would you explain? And everyone does a laugh. They're like, oh, we know he doesn't really know that but neither do we. And the guy went, it's a stop for a pipe organ. Like we should all know this. And that's fine then. Cool. I can rap about pipe organs. I can talk about, you know, the 
the Lamont Young song that was is being played on the largest pipe organ in the world, or the fact that my grandfather played pipe organ, whatever. But if usually, if I don't know the suggestion, the vast majority of the audience will not know the suggestion. Here's a trick: if you want to stump me, and you're in a city, pick a player from that sports a sports team in your city, and just say their name, and that's how you get me out, right? People. People don't really know because then everyone in the room will know who this person is, you know. But then you could probably and read I, the room, and then I could rap about. I could rap about the sports team, and I could imagine what he is like. And if I get it wrong, it's still funny. There's yeah. always a way to work around it, but that's the way to stump me, huh. um, or something that everyone in America knows. The other day, someone was like, you know, the e Eli Whitney or something, the cotton gin inventor, whoever it was, hmm. and like that's a great one to suggest because Americans are going to know who that is. I guess I guess you learn about that in school, but I'm not. But people don't, I don't know, if they don't figure that out, there's definitely vast holes in my knowledge that people could could pick up on. You could definitely, but still, like, I, there's one you did on Newtonian fluids. I don't even, I don't no, know yeah, what Newtonian, Newtonian fluid. fluid is. But then that's from watching an episode of Brainiac where they ran across a swimming pool of cornstarch or cornflour. I wonder, um, I wonder if that aspect of memory and that aspect of being able to pull it out of your head, that weakens with age. Right, because when you're young, mm. you you know your 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 analytical factual memory is very powerful, okay. and like later on, you know older people supposedly rely more on wisdom than facts. Mm. So you take like chess players, for instance, you know all the top chess players in the world are essentially in their twenties or yeah. even younger. It's because they remember huge lines of openings from some huge chess database, but then as they get into their forties or fifties. A, they're no longer as good, and B, they're not studying, memorizing all these variations. They're just kind of playing out of their yeah. instinct now. That's interesting. Um, I guess we'll have to see. We'll have to check. Right, you have a long time to go. The thing, I, what I've done is I've gone off track on the why I'm not worried about teaching people it because I think there's a big aspect of how I do it which I can't teach, right? And I compare this to how if you if you can wiggle your ears now, it's because you did it when you were a baby, right? Mm -hmm. You have to keep doing it from a young age. Otherwise, you don't develop. The, mu the muscle is so tiny that lets you do it. I was looking over to check you weren't wiggling your ears, being like, I can do it. I can't do it. <laughs> the muscle is so tiny. If you start doing it when you're a child, and I don't know how you'd know to start doing it, you can then do it throughout your life. And this, this, this is, it's like, I talk about this. I did a, I've talked about this. I don't know if it's online, though. I did a talk at Wired 2016. Um, and maybe I, I have a talk online at this conference called Thinking Digital from 2017. Maybe I did it in that. But the, the the concept of artificial limitations, people have heard about this, like the, I think Radiolab did it, if we're allowed to say other podcast names on this. Yes, yes. Uh, did an episode on it where they talked about Takeru Kobayashi who broke the the hot dog eating record. And the Roger Bannister running the four minute mile, under four minute mile, which happened near in Oxford, near where I used to live. And he, as soon as he broke the four minute mile, a bunch of other people were like, oh, it's possible. We can do it now. And as soon as Takeru Kobayashi doubled the world record of hot dogs that you could eat, everyone else started doing it. So I use those as examples. I kind of lie a bit when I talk about it because I think, I don't know if this is true. I say that when they asked Kobayashi, how did you break the record? The record was 24 or something. He ate 50 or 48. When they asked him, how did you do it? I say that he said, I didn't realize that was the record. 
Now, obviously, Roger, Ban- Roger Bannister knew four minutes was the record. But my point is, if you don't know how what the limit is, if you don't know how good you can be at something, then why would you ever... How could you... Why, why not surpass that? So for... This sounds stupid and unbelievable. From the age of 12 to about 18, when I started listening to hip-hop, which started because... Um, a guy in my primary school gave me, this would be before 12, but this, I wasn't rapping. A guy gave me an Eminem album, was like, listen to this, and I enjoyed it. My mum confiscated it. It was his CD. I didn't get it in back. When I went to secondary school, so I was about 11 or 12, there was a guy called Gulid, um, who um, he used to illegally download music and burn it onto CDs. You give him like a pound and he'd burn you an album. And I would want him to get me Nirvana albums. And he'd go, this album was only 45 minutes long. The CD's 74 minutes, so I've put 20 minutes of extra stuff on it. The things he put on were like Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle tracks. So that was my intro to stand-up and rap songs. He'd put on Dr. Dre and Eminem songs. And I'd listen to these and I'd be like, oh, this is so naughty. But like my mum didn't know I had them then because they're on the end of Nirvana albums, which apparently is, you know, much more appropriate singing about. Yeah, why you know, did you think all uh, Nirvana was exactly, more appropriate exactly. than Dr. Dre? Um, and I will say racism. <laughs> and so I'm listening to them. And I don't, I don't even know how I thought this. I thought all rap was made up. So I didn't see rap as like, rap is rhyming. I was like, rap is rhyming, but you're just saying it. And if you listen to Snoop Dogg, you can see how that's possible, right? Snoop sounds like he's just telling you a story and his rhymes. And that's why he's saying Izzle all the time because he's just trying to rhyme words. Yeah. He's like, well, okay, day doesn't rhyme with gun. So he's like, I've got my gizzle and my dizzle or whatever. It's definitely not a Snoop Dogg line. But I was like, oh, he's just telling a story and this is what rap is. And then you listen to early rap and the rhyming is so basic if you're looking at like, you know, Sugar Hill Gang or, you know, Run DMC. It's like monosyllable Beastie Boys. There's an improv game called Beastie Boys where I'll set up a line and then everyone has to say the rhyme at the end of the line. Why isn't this all made up? It sounds made up to me and that's what I think rap is. Now, what we have then is that I start listening to Eminem, who is just lyrically so good and so funny and so dense and so inventive. And I'm like, wow, this is how good you can be at making up, making up raps. Hmm. Oh, I imagine if I could be as good as that, like, because it's a challenge. And for my, for most of my life, I've always coasted and this sounds silly, but like, I always, I was always told I was smart and I was like, cool. A lot of the time I just did enough work to just be the best. So like at my school, I was like, oh, I want to be like one of the top kids. I don't want to work too hard because I want to have fun. And I always, I, a big thing I thought about myself was I was like, I'm probably like the fifth smartest kid in this school in my year, you know. Um, but I have fun. I'm not a nerd, right? Which I definitely was. But I was like, I, I played music. So I was like, oh, I have a band. I go to the movies. I don't spend every weekend doing my homework. I do just enough to be one of the best. But I have a good balance. But I think with freestyling, it was the first time with rapping. And I never, t- I never told, no one knew I did this. This was a thing I did in my room. I didn't go to shows because I was like, that's not for me. One, I'm underage, so I can't go to bars. Um, I would just make up rhymes. And then I went to university 
and I started doing improv when I'm just turned 19. And we're doing these improv rap games and we have people come in and teach us improv rap. And my director is like, you're very good at these. And I was just, it was easy for me to make up lyrics. And I realized obviously at some point rap was written, but by then, because I didn't have this artificial limitation, because I thought the best you could be at rapping, making it up was Eminem, that's why I'd aimed for. And so I think I had like, I'm not saying I'm as good at making up raps as he is writing them, but I had just gone to a level way above most people who grow up knowing, yeah, this is written, this is made up. Yeah, I, I imagine it's like, if you want to get better at anything, if, you, if you're constantly comparing yourself to beginners in that field, you're, kinda, you're gonna kind of stay in that level. But mm -hmm. if you're, like, let's even take stand-up comedy. Let's say you're on a, uh, if all you did is open mics, you'll be mm -hmm. an open micer. Oh, if, yeah. you, if, if you're constantly on a lineup with everybody who's got a Netflix special, and the crowd's expecting that, you know, type of quality, you're probably going to force yourself definitely to, to play at that level. I, I found that here um, going on after people like big comics, like Michelle Wolf going on after her. And I, I, before, I knew I was going after a gig. And so I, I was at a gig where she was on and someone else after her. Again, it was a situation where they were a good comic, but people, the audience wouldn't know them as much. And I watched how they dealt with it and they didn't address it. And I, you could feel the audience be like, you didn't acknowledge that this is, there's a change here. So when I did it, I, I walked on stage after Michelle Wolf had just destroyed, like leveled a room with material. And I walk on and I was like, I know, I also wish I was a famous comedian. And the audience immediately are just like, that's exactly what we were thinking. And then I just was like, I'm not even famous in England. It's not even like, you don't know who I am. No one knows who I am, but don't worry. And then immediately they're like, thank you for acknowledging that. Now we can have fun. The, the, and it makes you step up your game as well because the fact that you're on there with them, there's a subconscious thing where they go, well, they must be good. Maybe they're not famous, but they must be good because why would you have someone on after this famous person if they weren't funny? Or why would they be on? I mean, I imagine most people understand how comedy works. They're like a Friday night, at, you know, at a big club. It's not going to be a couple of shit comedians. But but I'll also, like, let's take another feel. Like, let's take swimming, swim racing. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what the different races are. But let's say swim there's... Swim racing, a, that's definitely what it's called. <laughs> like, let's say there's a 100-meter race in swimming. And one, you know, day, it's all beginners in your racing. And the next, you know, you, you a month goes by. And then the next time you do it, it's all, like, Olympic athletes. Mm -hmm. Now, you're not going to be an Olympic athlete, but my guess is you'll break your record yeah. oh, with the definitely. pros. Yeah. Because even if you can't see them, you're sensing the level yeah. and you're going to tr apply yourself more just because that's what everybody around you is doing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like sprinting. I'm sure a sprinting, you know, a hundred meter final where whoever's leading has, you know, no one close on their heels, they run slower than if it's super tight because they're pushing themselves, right? It's so, yeah. But then like I, the first time I went to a, like a freestyle rap thing in Manchester, which is where I'm from in the Northwest of England. Um, I remember going, I was like, oh, a freestyle rap thing. This is cool. And I went there and I walk in and it was like a concert. And at the end there was a freestyle rap jam. And there was a group of people standing around like, okay, we're going to freestyle now. Um, yeah, just imagine you're at a zoo and there's something creepy going on with the zookeepers and the lions. And so they pass the mic around and people are just, Rapping the worst stuff, just just like right, saying the word lion a lot, and then like saying four lines, then passing the mic on. And I was there like, 
this is the most atrocious thing I've ever seen. This is really bad. Like, these are people who were having time to think up lines because it's coming round to them. Like, that's in improv games. You'd have two minutes until it got to you where you could just go, oh, I've just written 18, no, 16 lines in my head. Um, and so I, I left. I was like, I'm not even getting involved in this because it's not going to look, one, I was like, it's not going to look good if I'm like, hi there, guys. And then spit some, you know, some magic, um, which is surprising me because I was a very arrogant child. <laughs> um, but is this because like you spent so many hours just coming up with these lines and trying and and having that as your bar, like Dr. Dre or Eminem, yeah. or, like you thought you needed to be at least within striking range of yeah, them? Yeah, well, that's it. But I just thought that was possible. I was like, oh, well, this is, you know, if they can do it, why can't I do that? So like, let's take, let's take uh, any other area of life, whether it's playing the violin or playing some game or some sport or investing. Yeah. Like if, if it, it seems like one way to skip the line, so to speak, is to, to put yourself in a group of the highest level performers, mm -hmm. whether mentally or physically yeah. or in some way, what's, what's, what's like a technique for doing that? Hmm. I know that's kind of a broad question. Yeah. Well, that's, cause I'm thinking like, how, how would you even in, in the terms of what I did, like, how would you even forget what, what the best you can be is like you know if someone's like oh it takes you three years to master the violin then it's going to take you at least three years to master it because that's what you're telling yourself you need to be like what why why wouldn't it take one year why wouldn't it take six months to become the best of the violin so i think that's a question you have to ask i know that's an answer to a different question no but that's interesting though so you have you have to basically train yourself to forget all the rules like, of an expert tells us something and this is, this is, I don't want this to turn off into me being like, experts know nothing because they do listen to them, right? But if someone says, oh, you can only, you know, you can only do this in this amount of time or, you know, this, it's not actually possible for you to do this until you're blah, then kind of be like, well, why? Why, why can't I do it that way? And yeah, just set yourself a different thing, like make a different timescale because I don't know how I can think of another situation where well, you could be as dumb as I was and not know that rap was written, right? Well, take, take Elon Musk, right? So he started uh, SpaceX, and in order to do that, he needed to literally be a rocket scientist without having studied rocket science. But he had the benefit of, you know, there, there was somewhat of a benefit of money, although mm -hmm. maybe that's actually unclear, but he simply called up physicists read all their books and then asked them questions and they answered them not because he paid them, but maybe they answered them because he's famous for having money. Mm -hmm. And again, he put himself at the top level. He had an excuse to get at the top level. Like, Oh, I'm starting this rocket science company. What did you mean by this? This is, and so he like, like you did, he didn't just hang out at the local amateur rocket yeah, yeah, science yeah. club. He called up the MIT guy who built a rocket. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's a good, a nice comparison. Um, how, so talking about putting yourself in with the highest achievers. I mean, the stand-up comedy example is like when you start out, you, you should, yeah, watch, watch the funniest people. Don't be like, and aim to be as funny as them. Now you won't be <laughs> unless you're some ridiculous prodigy of which there are so few in stand-up, right? Um, I can't, I don't, I don't think I have a, a valid answer for the question. But I think, I think, I think that's because it's hard. Like, and maybe in some cases, because everybody wants a hierarchy. 
So people want to put you like, oh, you just started. Well, you're here. This is your position now. You can't leave this position until you graduate to mm -hmm. here. And you have to figure out ways to literally skip the line. And, and sometimes you can do that with money. Sometimes you can do that through connections, uh, sometimes through circumstance. So like if you're an athlete, uh, and it just so happens your next door neighbor is destined to be a hall of fame football player. You're probably going to skip the line in some way just by practicing with that person every day. Mm. Um, and like you said, um, to have an, to be unaware, to almost hypnotize yourself into being unaware of what, of how poorly you can be, Yeah, you know, Maybe hypnosis. Maybe hypnosis works. Yeah, Maybe or, that is a thing. Or some kind of meditation. Yeah. Uh, you know, we had one person on the podcast, Todd Herman, he wrote a book called The Alter Ego Effect. And he basically says that all, a lot of athletes, what they do is before they go out onto the field, they almost do this weird meditation where they picture themselves as their favorite superhero or their favorite all-time athlete or whatever. And they really mm. kind of encapsulate that person's features. So they they that's the standard that they, they program That's inside cool. their heads. Um, my, here's a, here's a comparison on the PlayStation Four exclusive game, MLB, the show, which is a baseball game. The re I, I started playing it recently because it was a free download and I was like, I needed it. I was in Vegas for a week and it's very boring for me in Vegas because I don't gamble. Um, I wanted a time suck. I was like, I just want something I can zone out and play to stop me from feeling depressed about all the gambling that's going on. And so I started playing it and I just Googled like, you know, how to start playing. I know nothing about baseball. So that's what I was interested in. Like, what are the basic rules I need to know so I know I can't run when this happens or if they catch it, I'm out and he's out. And from, what, from looking around, everyone was like, hey, when you start playing, just play on the hardest difficulty. Because mm -hmm. if you want to play online, you're playing against people. It's like, don't, there's a mode in the game where you start out as beginner and as you play through, it levels up the difficulty depending on your performance. So you'll be able to keep hitting all the balls and so it'll make it harder. And it was like, don't do that. Just play on legendary setting because why not? And you're like, oh yeah, why play on easy setting? Because you're learning either way, learn the hard one. So I think that's a, <laughs> the only comparison I can make at the uh, moment. Okay, I can give a similar comparison and, and equally, you know, not important like there's a game on um online that i always play it's like a boggle game and I, for some reason i was always just entering in at the intermediate level and i'd come in you know maybe in the top five and but then i started entering in to what was the highest level and i was coming in last almost all the time and, and then just within one day though i beat my i've been playing this for 10 years this mm -hmm. game Within one day, I beat my all-time high score okay. because suddenly, even though while you're playing, you can't really see. You're not. It's not like I'm focused on how they're doing, but you while their scores are racking up. But you just feel like that extra level of competitiveness, and mm. I'm in this group now, so I have to be respected somehow. Yeah. And it forces you to to it pushes the brain in some way. Yeah. So let's let's say this then: play everything on hard. That can be the yeah. And and, and you know, like with comedy, I had. Comedy is an interesting one because, so I've written 20 books. I've been on a public speaker. I have a social media following. So that allowed me to get on stage mm. at comedy clubs before I really had the yeah. requisite eight years or seven years of stand-up comedy. Yeah. So suddenly I'm following a Michelle Wolf or a Bill Burr or yeah, yeah. whoever. 
And I would always choose, if given the choice, I would always choose to go after Bill Burr instead of before Bill Burr. And that forces you to experiment and to, to skip the line. And the thing is, even if you are Bill Burr, being Bill Burr, having fans, only lets you get away with it for about five minutes. This is what big stand-up comedians have told me. I'm like, hey, what's it like when you're trying new material? Like, does it suck that you're not getting a real response for the jokes because they're just happy to see you? And they tell me, because I'm, I'm nowhere near famous. Like, no one knows who I am when I step on stage. They tell me, oh, no, for the first five minutes, they'll give you that. But then if your jokes suck, it's not like they're fake laughing. Like, so even they, you know, they get that kind of pass for a bit. So, yeah, following those people, as long as your jokes are good, you, you're fine, right? It's... But you still have to push yourself to get oh, exactly. there because yeah. they have the skill. So even if they, they, their fame only buys them five minutes, their skill buys them the next 20. Exactly. It's just that, yeah, that's the thing. Just being famous is enough. I mean, I've seen enough. I live in LA. I've seen enough people with recognizable celebrity do stand-up. And I'm like, wait, are they a stand-up? And I see them do a set and I go, oh, no, they're not. They're trying this or doing this. Um, and they're kind of coasting on names that's always very disappointing so so but then it's interesting with you with the freestyle again that sets you apart so that's another way to skip the line is if you can be set apart so everyone you know goes on stage and tells the same categories of jokes like mm -hmm. here's tinder jokes here's airplane yeah. jokes here's these but you can skip the line because you created a category so yeah. creating a category is another way to, yeah. to skip the line i mean i have a bunch of friends I, my favorite club in la is the comedy and magic club which is in hermosa beach they have magicians on. Now, it's rare that the magicians they have on are like classic illusionist magicians. I've seen a couple there. You're on, they're on the bill with comedians. So the crowd kind of expects them to be funny. And when I see the funny magicians, I'm like, that's so smart because you're not just a magician. Yet no one cares how good the trick is. If you present it hilariously, like I've seen three different variations on the same like note, note in an orange trick. And each of them is hilarious, even though I know at the end of it, there's gonna, it's going to be in the orange. And I know how they do that trick. The way they present it is so funny. And I would rather laugh because we all know magic is not real. Sorry, kids. Magic's <laughs> not real. So make me laugh doing it. Um, and I was with my friend the other day and I saw him do a trick that I love. And he was like, I was like, oh, you killed. He's like, I messed up that trick so hard. I'm like, nobody cared. Like, yeah, you messed up a couple of things. It was so funny. So... If you're, I mean, obviously I can't invent categories for people. Whatever you're doing, figure, you know, musical genres, become a hybrid, do all these things, be the, um, there's like a Japanese girl band that play death metal. So they're like, you know, cute kind of, that kind of Japanese schoolgirl cartoonish look. And they play death metal. I think they're called baby metal. And then they're good, right? And they have dance, synchronized dance routines to, to death metal. And they have huge numbers of fans because... Hey, what a weird combo. It works. Duck and waffle. Fry a duck breast, put it on a waffle. You're like, oh, that's crazy. Boom, you're the best duck and waffle restaurant. Why? Because no one else does duck and waffle. I mean, maybe now they do. I, I think this is so key. Like, I think we've been taught like, oh, you got to focus, focus, focus. I think that's the wrong thing. You got to kind of list the things you love doing, try to get pretty good at all of them yeah. and see what's in the middle. Be good at something, mix it with something else you're good at, and then you are the best at that. So so now with the the with the freestyle, because I'm still fascinated again, like I can't even imagine the skill required to do what you do and, and we'll we'll hear it in a second. But 
let's say you're in the middle of, of, I mean, maybe this doesn't happen to you anymore after 18 years, but let's say you're in the middle of a freestyle rap and you just can't think of the, the rhyme on the next sentence. It's so funny when that happens. And it doesn't happen a lot. But if I rhyme the same word twice, or if I rhyme and then don't rhyme, I will just be tell the audience, you know, and that word doesn't rhyme, like in the rap. And it's <laughs> hilarious because it's it shows that it's real and it shows that it's human. Like, you know, this when you mess up on stage, if you tell a joke and it doesn't work, you go, oh, that joke sucked. And people be like, ha, 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 yeah, it did uh, suck. I do jokes where I'll do a joke and I'll miss out a word or I'll do a joke and it won't get a big laugh. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, that joke is funny when I don't fuck up the setup. And people will be like, oh, yeah, you did because you, well, that wasn't a sentence you used. Um, so, yeah, I can always get out of it that way. Um, and then are, are there also shortcuts in the sense that sometimes you don't rhyme exactly. It's not like... Oh, you just slam you know, rhyme. Yeah, you just mix words up. I, I can't remember what I was reading recently. I, I was subtitling. Right, there's a company I used to subtitle my videos and I was I go through to check them and just, you know, because sometimes, you know, my the way my words come out, they spell the wrong word or whatever. <sighs> um, and I, I listen to myself and I'm like, wait, if you read these subtitles, this rap does not rhyme. There is no rhyming going on. And then listen to it, I'm like, but it does rhyme. And it just sounds, it sounds right. You know, I, a challenge I used to do with when I, I teach like improv rap workshops, I'm like, okay, we're going to figure out how we can rhyme any word. And I'd get people to say two words. And then I'd say, okay, how do they rhyme? And people are like, they don't. I'm like, no, you're just thinking that because they don't have the same syllable at the end. So like, they, what's an example? They do, I don't know, like table and glass. How would you, um, how would you rhyme them? I should have chosen an easier one. Um, <laughs> T table sounds like GL, like start a glass, and then you split that to ass. <laughs> so yeah, table, <laughs> duh, 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 sipping from my GL, ass, that's a glass that, you know, it, it, <laughs> there's rhymes everywhere. And the more you think about it, the more you see them. People are like, do you read rhyming dictionaries? No, I listen to rap. I listen to poetry. I listen to books. I always say, people are like, how do you do it? I'm like, well, you know all the words I know. If you don't know some of the words, that's only 1% of the words I use. I mean, it's not like I'm a, you know, horrendous linguist. Um, I speak no other languages as well, right? People think that, like, oh, you must speak so many languages. I'm like, no, it's pointless to me because, I mean, obviously I would love to speak other languages. Um, it's pointless to me because you you can't freestyle in another language. I, I don't think you can. Um, I work with a guy called Mads Korsgaard, who's a Danish psychologist. He wrote a book on freestyle rap and creativity in Danish. He does talks and lectures with a Danish rapper called Pil B. Mads and I have started doing lectures. He found me because he was just like, I just Googled the, I Googled for the best freestyle rapper who spoke English. He's like, and I watched a bunch of videos and you were the guy like that I liked. And he's like, yeah, because Pill's amazing. Like, and Pill is like a legitimate rapper. He's like an underground rap sensation. He headlines festivals and he can freestyle amazingly. But he can't freestyle in English because huh, he speaks English, but you can't freestyle in it. So... So you're just, you're in the middle of, of rapping about the Doppler effect and it just comes to you like, you know, oh, an ambulance driving down and I, I'm not going to rap it obviously, but the frequency starts here and then it goes down to here and you're just coming up with the, I'm, I'm being a fan, but you're just coming up with the lines just like that. Yeah. Um, like, la like last nothing night, came out of a practice no, no, session. No. Last night, here's an example. So I forgot the last word last night, which was deep sea fishing. And I, I finished, I did the four topics and I put the mic back in the stand and like the crowd go crazy. 
And I was like, I had this nagging feeling I'd forgotten something. And I was like, oh, there's, there's one left. And I just looked around the room until I kind of remembered where I, there was, I was like, I don't think I did her suggestion. I look at her and she's looking at me. Everyone's clapping like they don't even care. I didn't say I'm going to rap about all these things. So, you know, and there's a bunch of suggestions that I say I don't take that I threw in. Like one guy, you know, might say, you know, the, the Revolutionary War and I'll be like, I'm not going to take that. But then I might throw it in anyway, just as a joke. So I look at her and I'm like, ah, oh, deep sea fishing. And so as the applause is still going, I just wait for the beat to circle around and I've stopped rapping for about four bars and I just go back in and I was like, Chris, that was really bad of you to forget that. So just hit this hard. And because on stage, I'm never thinking about it. But I just told myself, hit it hard. Tell you what, let's just nail these rhymes. Let's make it funny. Let's really do this. And I was like, boom, boom. And I just told myself, come on, try and rhyme every line. Try and make every word rhyme with the same syllable or whatever. Like really show off. And so I did it, finished my back in the stand. I was like, oh, it's cool when I tell myself it has to be good. This is since like, because it's only recently that these videos have been doing really well, which was a, a lovely thing to happen because I'd be I'd put like 30 out and I was like, I'm sure these videos are good. I'm sure they're good. I wish more people would see them. Maybe maybe people aren't seeing them because they're just not good. And then one caught and I was like, oh, they are good. Now people know they're there and now people are watching them and liking them. They're good, which is great. Um, but because I put that one out and I was like, this isn't even like one of my best videos. I was like, it's a fine. The one the next week I put, I was like, this is a really good one. And then that went out and people were like, wow, this is great. And a lot of people messaged me like, that's my favorite one. And then I had this pressure because I put ones up that I think are average. I put one up on Wednesday, yesterday, which I put up and people were like, yeah, great. And someone commented going, just want to let you know, um, just a friendly thing. I've watched all your videos. I think this is probably the weakest one in terms of rhymes, narrative and humor. And I was like, and people were like jumping on him because you know how the internet gets. And I was like, I don't know if you can like find the source code of the page. Look what the file name is. This file was in my folder as distinctly average freestyle rap. Huh. I thought this was a bad one. I put it up because I kind of like the idea of being like, look, I curate them somewhat, but usually just for funniness. Um, this well, one had a funny bit. In it. It's not always just brilliant. Sometimes it's just fine. But even when it's fine, I hope they're still entertaining, especially live for the audience. That you know, Once you get to a certain level, it's never going to be bad. Unless I was like, I don't know, really drunk. Did did you, when you started doing them, mixing the comedy with the freestyle rap, were they bad? Or did you ever oh, have I'm, like... I'm, I'm sure they were. I mean, I started it because I did a kid's show. I still still run it in Edinburgh at the festival called AAA Batteries Not Included. And the aim of that show, it's a clean comedy show. I aim to entertain parents as much as kids because I, this is another thing. Like there was a gap in the market 10 years ago at the Edinburgh Festival. No one was doing kids comedy shows that parents could enjoy. It's kind of like Pixar, right? You can uh. watch a Pixar film and be like, this is brilliant and funny. I was like, hmm. And my improv was always family friendly as well. Um, so I, I thought, someone should just do a stand-up comedy show where the jokes are just jokes, but there's no swear words. I don't care if the kids don't know about a topic. As long as it's not rude, they can hear it. The parents were laughing. And then the kids, I'm like, I just need to keep them entertained. The parents will buy tickets. But if the kids complain, it's a tough gig. So what I used to do is at the end of each show, and I'd have like a bunch of comedians on do it, but then I would close out and I'd be like, hey kids, anyone got any like toys with them that you love? And the, you know, younger kids especially would have some soft toys. I'd be like, what's this one for that? This is giraffe. I'm like, cool, that's really cool. Do you mind if I get giraffe up here? 
And then I'd be like, hey, what's this? I'd always find a dinosaur. There'd always be a dinosaur. And I'd improvise a song, make a little song up. And then I'd always make the dinosaur rap. And I'd do some lame Jurassic 5 joke. And some of the dads would be like, <laughs> and I'd do a rap. And I had one of the comedians was dating a, a comedy critic. And she saw the show and she's like, that rap is a very smart thing to do. And I was like, oh, thank you. The kids love it. She's like, you should do that in your stand-up. And I was probably about three years into stand-up at this point. And I was like, I think it's lame. I think it's gimmicky. I'm sure, I'm sure it would suck. And she's like, no, I've not seen anyone else do that. I think you'd kill it. I was like, I think you, I think that's crazy. I think it wouldn't work. She's like, try it. So I tried it. And immediately it jumps you to like closing shows because you couldn't put it in the middle. It would like scupper the vibe of the show. You can open with it and I MC shows and I'll do it up top. People are like, how do you MC? I'm like, oh no, I do it up top to warm the crowd up. Um, and then it's not like I'm like, and now your first act. I then start doing jokes again because, you know, you want to get back right. on those. But it's everyone suddenly like, holy shit, this show's not going to suck. That was amazing. He, for that, I'll be like, hey, what's your name, man? What'd you do? What's your name? What'd you do? Do jokes. And then I'll just do a quick rap about, hey, Bill the Postman. And, you know, it's... it's. But it's interesting that she said that to you because, again, the way you skipped the line was to find, so to speak, the, the place least crowded. Like... I think I think this is true for everyone in every field. You kind of have to find the area that can make you unique, and then you skip the line. Yeah. Like then you're closing shows all of a sudden. Yeah. You know, in in typically, you know, someone's closing shows after they've been doing comedy ten years. Say. Yeah. You have to have a closer. Like that's it. You have to have a routine that's gonna be like the best thing of the night. And it's an interesting thing for me. Like I, my my stand up shows, my one man shows. I've done five one-hour comedy shows and they always end with a rap. And then I've always made sure that's a bit like 50 minutes of the show is stand-up. Now, I had to start, as more and more people knew me for rap, I had to start doing a rap about 20 minutes in because other, I found that people would be like, why is he not rapping? Because I'd do like, when I'd advertise the show on, on a TV spot or on a late night, not late night spot, but like um, do like a five-minute on a, another person's show, I'd do the rap because that's the thing I'm best at. People would come to the show and they'd be like, hey, he's just doing jokes. Now, the flyers and everything will advertise as a stand-up show, but I'd do a rap about 20 minutes in so they would be like, oh, wow, that was amazing. And then I'd close with one. But I'd always have like a few minutes after the rap where the narrative of the show tied up or I did a big callback because I was like, I don't just want to be relying on the rap every night. Like, boom, final joke. Good night, everybody. I want to have like, you know, some satisfaction to the story. So I have that in those shows, but as far as closing bits of material go, I don't really have a big closer. I have jokes that I could close on. I have stories I could could close on, but I'm obviously always going to close on the rap because it's the biggest thing. But it is it is interesting because I haven't needed to write a closer. I don't think I have a routine that I'm like, if I just had to do five minutes of stand-up, it would be fine. It wouldn't be, you wouldn't go, wow, that's a great five minutes. Well, and this is the this is the whole point of, and again, I'm not saying you're you're great or good or average or whatever, but you you took this area where you're probably as great as you can be at this point, and you took freestyle rap where you could be as, as great as you could be at this point, which is great. And again, putting them together gives you this weird point of view, not a point of view about necessarily life, but a point of view about what's entertaining, what's comedy, what people are looking for. Whereas let's take, you know, another comedian out there might... You know, like Dave Chappelle in his recent special Sticks and Stones, he had a certain 
point of view about what's called cancel cancel culture. Mm-hmm. So he could avoid he could he could sometimes not have the punchline because he's making an interesting point about mm. cancel culture, and so that puts him in this unique spot. And so, so I'm just curious if you ever feel like you need to have a point of view. You discussed this earlier when you said you know you didn't you, you need something important to say to have a rap album. Do you feel like you don't need necessarily in comedy to have uh, kind of an important um, unique I don't point think of view? You need you need a point of view because there are comedians where we know their point of view. Like so, this is a thing that people um, com- talked about Chappelle's special and Jasmine's special coming out. They were like, "Why are people getting angry at Dave and not getting angry at Anthony?" when they say these equally offensive things taken out of context. And it's because Anthony is a character who never professes to be a morally good person. You never look at him and you go, oh, he's a good person. Why does he say these horrible things? Whereas Dave is not a character. He's a guy who, you know, is admired and looked up to by a lot of people. And so when he says these things that they're like, oh, but, oh, I, I thought you were better than that. Like a lot of people say. So that's kind of a difference between them. But you know, the best comedians have a point of view. Like the studio we're in has like so many great comedians on the wall, but you know that Rodney Dangerfield will approach a subject different from Steve Martin, differently from Eddie Murphy. If you give them the same talk about these things, they'll all talk about it in a different way. And you could probably predict that because we know their point of view. Like, like take a look at, I don't know, is Richard Pryor up here somewhere? You got, uh, yeah, Pryor yeah. there, yeah. So like his whole comedy changed when he went from doing kind of the standard stand-up yeah. that all his peers were doing mm-hmm. to suddenly telling these stories yeah. with zero punchlines, but it was just his delivery and his yeah. acting out. And it's like, he he was working in this mafia strip club and imitating all the voices. And suddenly that came to life. That was his point yeah. of view, that he had the kind of this hard knocks life different from the audience, even though people couldn't relate. People always say be relatable. People couldn't relate directly to what he was saying because it was so extreme. But somehow they were. It was just somehow they were relating to the fact well, that he had this point of view. different audiences, right? So black audiences might have related more to him yeah. than white audiences would have. And that was then a thing that he played off, like, in his specials. Like, it's so funny when he plays off that. Um, but I, I think you really do need a point of view. It's one thing I I question myself. And I, I, a, lot of, a lot of people that I'll chat to or hear is like, it takes about 10 years to start becoming good at comedy. And I, I just hit 10 years. And to figure out your point of view and your perspective. And I don't think I have that because I've never had to that much because for me, I'm like, what's my point of view? Well, I'm the British guy who raps, which isn't a point of view. Right. So, But it's a point of view about comedy. It's a point of view that this is, you could be entertaining and yeah. different. And, yeah. and so it's something I'm thinking of more. And like I, my, my, the show I did in New York a few months ago was, that was, it came from like friends and people I trust being like, hey, you should do a, a rap show. And I was like, well, a rap show? They're like, no, like a comedy rap show, but like a musical comedy show. Like write some funny raps and write some funny songs and put the freestyles in, have stand-up. So I did that and I was like, what do I want this hour to be about? People were like, oh, you could do like, go through chronologically. Is it a history of hip hop or is it? And I was like, I was interested in like, at that time, like ideas of masculinity. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'm going to kind of, that's going to be the end point. Um, that bit's now not in that show and kind of is in a separate show that I'm working on because it didn't fit as well. But like that show was me basically, I don't know, kind kind of telling a story of like how I came to love hip hop as like a middle class white guy growing up in England. Thread that narrative through 
just jokes. I'd just be like, I'd do a thing and be like, hey, but isn't it crazy? Isn't it insane that the number, the first hip hop song to hit number one, if we ignore Blondie's Rapture, which is the first song with rapping in to hit number one on the Billboard charts, the first rap song was Vanilla Ice, Ice Ice Baby. That was the first one to hit number one? First number one rap song on Billboard. Not um, Walk This Way with Run DMC? or um, Even if that wasn't, that doesn't care. It's not a, it's a song with rapping in, uh. you know. Um, but this is the first number one. And in the show, I'm like, how did we let that happen? How is that the first rap number one? Like, it's obvious, right? It, it was the first white rap song. And mainstream America is white. So how do you sell rap to the mainstream audience? You take away everything that makes it political or scary to them, everything that makes it black. And so I just tell you, I'm like, he took a black art form, he made it accessible to white people, he made it more palatable. And then that's your, the thing you've said about it. It's got your jokes in. And then boom, I do a rap song called Palatable Rap, which is me mocking how you would make a song that was accessible to white people. Huh. Do that. And it, because I kind of wanted that show to always be like, always acknowledge that rap is black music that rap is, comes from a political place. And that ran through. And then every song would be a funny song as well as you know, sometimes making a point, but comedy, you meant to make people laugh. It's it, not like it, I'm preaching it, the whole time. It reminds me of the last two specials that Bo Burnham did mm -hmm. where he mixes stand up with comedy and, but he has this point of view of his own vulnerabilities yeah. and, and whether he's vulnerable or not, I don't know, but he has this this point of view that that is is special. Yeah, I mean, Bo's, Bo's last show was, that was very much like a thing I was watching a lot while writing that show. I was like, oh, how do you mix this stand up, this thing? And like, Bo's very good at it. I mean, that show especially was a show about performing, for me at least when I was watching it, um, and how we all perform. And so he would just go from bit to bit to bit. It was all a performance and every bit commented on that. And it's one of the interesting things like writing stand up shows is how do you structure them over an hour? Um, I would say, so I'm writing a new show at the moment for Australia, for Perth Fringe in January to February 2020. And that's just a, that was because my agent from the UK was like, hey, I know you've written this music. It was when I was writing the musical comedy show. He was like, don't forget, like, you're a good stand-up though. Like, write some stand-up as well. And that show has stand-up in, but it's all very like rap tangential or musically related or just lead-ins to songs. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. And so I just thought, what was I interested in at the moment? And I'm very interested in um, Gen Z's approach to like gender fluidity and like expressions of male love. So I saw a Facebook status where someone, my friend who's like in her 60s, I think, posted about like, hey, I was at my friend's like nephew's house and he had his friends around and they were all like just talking about how much they loved each other and like hugging. It's like, I've not seen young boys behave like this is this thing, and then people were posting in saying like their experiences, and I, I find this really interesting and encouraging. And so I, I, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about these studies that showing like, you know, millennials and Gen Z rejecting capitalism and accepting, being more accepting of socialism. And I find this interesting that we're kind of in a generation where like, yeah, capitalism is, 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 is a bad thing. And so then all I did was like, you have to submit the show early. So I was like, I wrote a blurb, which is like, the West has failed. Capitalism is a virus. Here are some jokes about that. And then I'll write a show about that and make some jokes about it. And that show at the moment is, I think it's shaping up it to be fun. Um, like, okay, when you're thinking of like capitalism as a virus, what what's your next step in sort of coming up with jokes about that? Like, do you talk about, what, okay, so, okay, well, income inequality or, 
you know, well, billionaires are bad and this yeah. is- Yeah, so I, well, I just find, the, because the thing is, my aim is to make people laugh. So I'm, I'm not out there, with this show at least, trying to spread a message or trying to convert people. And I don't particularly know where I stand on capitalism. I have friends much more radical than me. Um, but for me, I was like, okay, if that's what I'm talking about a bit, what can I talk about? Oh, I can talk about the time I worked in a supermarket for two years when I was 16 to 18. And I've, ne I've analyzed that before for material, but never through this lens. I've never thought, why did a 16-year-old boy who was studying have to work night shifts at a store in a really horrible part of Manchester to make money so he could afford to go to university? Why is that a, a thing that happens? But then what are all the funny stories that happened about that? And what about, you know, all these things? Um, funny things that came out of that. And I pull those out. Um, the, that sh yeah, that show is now turning into a thing about how we present ourselves and how we protect our image, which actually I think is even more interesting to me. Yeah, so, so again, like what's, is there a time when you felt like you had to get along with the other workers at the store? All the and, time. And so you had I, to- Within a few weeks, I, one of the managers was like, you know, you could- you could be floor manager now. Um, and I was like, I was like, oh, I, I don't think I want to do that. I, I'm 16 years old and people here have worked here for a long time. I'm like, yeah, they don't love this job. They don't care. They're doing it. Like you've been working. Like, And my scan rate was fascinating. Well, because it was like one of my first jobs. I thought you had to work hard. And I was, I was like, I don't know. And so I, I was like, I felt bad about that. They were like, people get punished if their scan rate's not as high as the others. So I stopped scanning that fast. I was like, no, I don't want to get Janice in trouble for not scanning right. as fast as me. That's like such a horrible thing to do. So, um, so there's your there's your point of view, but then, how, and it's a good story. So then how do you put that extra twist uh, at the end? Oh, I mean, that's not a story that will be in the show. Um, these are just stories of times that I've like, been like, that's a bit fucked up. Like I, I worked in a call center for two weeks um, doing corporate debt collection. So companies don't pay bills to other companies. I'm like, hey, you owe companies money. And I was just temping. Everyone else who worked there had been there for a longer time. And in my first week, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I liked persuading people. Mm. And I'd be like, I'd just throw on some charm and get the things. And at the end of the first week, I had incredible numbers. Like the money I'd, because also there was an incentive. We got more money. We got paid, not very much, but if we claim more money, but we get it. And I went back the second week and no one else was there. And I was like, hey, where's everyone gone? They were like, you got back more money than the other six people here combined. Why would we have them when we could have you? And I'm like, they all lost their jobs. They got like, not, you know, they were temps, but, and I was just like, oh, um, I quit and I didn't do it. I, I worked um, for a taxi company in marketing, tiny taxi company. The boss was insane. He, he fired the office manager for calling up his wife during office hours. Not his wife, the, the taxi owner's wife said, you mean calling up my wife and leaving her threatening messages? And the guy's like, I wasn't. And I knew this guy. I was like, he has not. Like, he is he's scared of any, anything. And he fired the guy. He's like, you're the office manager now. And I was like, no, you don't have anyone working for you anymore. And I left. Um, I, I, it's something I've always found very ugly, this kind of employee-employer power play that I don't like. Um, and then, and then, so again, like, like it's like a funny it. sequence of stories. But I never tell these stories on stage because I don't tell stories on stage. And it's huh. why I'm writing the show. Now, I, those aren't going in the show because I don't have a punchline for any of them. The, the story I'm telling at the moment is a story about how at the supermarket, 
one night I, they said, hey, Chris, I was the only guy working on the checkouts. I wouldn't work on the shop floor because I like, my hands are very soft and it cut up your hands doing all the shelf stacking. And I was like, oh, I'm, I don't want to do that. I don't want to work on the tills, um, on the registers, sorry. And so I was the only guy there. And the security guard, a six foot four Nigerian guy with one eye called Kuba, he, he needed a break. And the other security guard was sick. So my manager goes, Chris, would you, um, would you just go and see Kuba? And he's like, yeah, you need to cover me for my break. Let me teach you how to do security. And he teaches me how to do security. And so I stand on security for 15 minutes at one in the morning in Withenshaw in Manchester, which the US show Shameless is based on a UK show called Shameless, which is set in Withenshaw. To give you an idea, it's not, yeah. a, it's not a great place. And so I sat on security for 15 minutes and it went fine. Nothing got stolen. And so the next time that Cuba didn't turn up and the security, uh, the security guard wasn't there, they were like, Chris, you need to go on security. So I went on security and everything got stolen. And I'm like, that's a hilarious story, right? That we thought it would be, you know, and there's a lot of stuff in that story that for me is very funny and it, this whole idea of like how you present yourself and like what was the difference and what happened and all these stupid things. And there's a lot of jokes in there that I, I'm excited about telling. I'll tell that story because for me, I have a punchline for that story. So yeah, so like without, you, you know, w w I understand this is not the way you would deliver it, but like, w again, what's an example of taking that story and finding a punchline in the middle okay, of it? so you always have to have surprises. Mm -hmm. So, so you're painting characters in a picture. So one, it's hilarious that I'm a 16 year old boy wearing a six foot four security guard's coat. My hands aren't even out the things. Um, I'm standing there like he has one eye. So I'm keeping one eye closed to try and, I think that's why he's menacing. And I'm like keeping one eye closed. And then, well, there's jokes there about depth perception. So if someone ran past me, I still couldn't grab them anyway. Um, little details that you'll remember. Like I remember he used to tell me, I was like, what do you do when you catch them? He's like, oh, I, I dislocate their arm. Like what? He's like, well, you know, they shouldn't be stealing. So I, like, how are they going to steal a dislocated arm? And so that's just funny. And then I talk about how when I'm behind the podium, when he's not there, the security podium, I see a little tally chart of like arms dislocated. Mm -hmm. You know, you get a laugh because, hey, we remember that. The punchline for the story I know is like, the, the main punchline for why people stole everything is like, he tells me, by the way, we're not insured to go, if they leave the, vet, the building, we can't chase them, we're not insured. And so when I'm on security, this guy just brazenly walks out and then shouts at me like, aren't you gonna do anything? And I said, legally, I can't follow you once you're outside. And so he comes back with all his friends, <laughs> like, oh, if we just run fast enough, and I'm like, you know, if you've ever wondered how many people, or if you ever wondered how, uh, how you steal a Coinstar machine, it's with six people running in synchro uh, synchronicity. And so there's all these things. And then Kuba comes back, you know, the next day, all this stuff's been stolen. And he's like, hey, I heard what happened last night. And I'm like, what went wrong? The first time it was so easy. I just stood there and like people were intimidated. They didn't steal anything. He's like, well, the first time I was on my cigarette break standing right outside that door. So they thought I was still on. Um, so you, you got the surprise, like, oh, he was there anyway. And then the final punchline of the show is like, when I quit the job, when I left and went to university, Kuba's like, hey, you know, I was told you it's about like projecting this image. I'm like, yeah. He calls me over to his desk and he like gets down face to face. 
and like he's there and he just lifts up his eye patch and he's got two eyes just pretending <laughs> that's good <laughs> and that's like i wrote that story and i was like that's the theme of the show the, the show is always going to be about i love that perception and reality and how we you know it's interesting to me like people who um like female female authors writing with initials rather than first names because people will buy their books more or accept their books more you know that kind of thing and i there's so much in that and also comedy is actually so often what the audience think they're seeing and what actually you're about to reveal to them as well you know like the uh, like switch and bait or twisting things so it's I, that's my perspective from that but i you know it's still still a very nascent show i should start writing it considering that it's going to be on stage from mid-january but only for people in perth and i've done there four times before i love perth they they come out and see you crazily they're like oh he's he's foreign he's not from here he must be good you're like no i could just afford a plane ch ticket mate <laughs> well so can we um throw out a couple of phrases of you, you don't mind we need to get a beat um oh, we have we, we have the theme song for the this this podcast i let okay. pl play the beat and let's see if it's uh uh, hip hop enough. <laughs> and how long will it go for? Uh, three minutes, I think. Okay, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe three minutes. And it's, it's acapella, right? There's no words. Yeah, there's no words. Acapella. <laughs> or, or the opposite of acapella. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a beat. It is. Uh, I can't even. I I don't know my um my conjugation to make acapella into it. We'll make this the theme song of the show. <laughs> It is a team song on the show, no? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it, so the beat is ours, uh, but I'm saying now with the words full. <laughs> I mean, out of context, people are like, "What is this?" Unless they know it's improvised, it'll be shit. No, no. Well, we'll set it up good. <laughs> uh, where, where are you performing this weekend? Um, Comedy Cellar. There, it's all sold out. I think. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Two tonight. Three on Friday. Three on Saturday. Two on Sunday. When you come back to New York, you got to perform. I here. know. I will. I've. I've. Um, we passed my my emails on. It'd be lovely. I'd yeah. To. Just that, you know, the more I can gig, the happier I am. It's a weird thing. Like when I moved to LA, I wasn't getting stage time anymore because no one knew who I was. And I started getting very depressed and I realized it's, it's not a healthy thing. I was like, oh, if I don't gig, I am unhappy, like profoundly unhappy because for eight years I had made it so that every week I was on stage to hundreds of people. Um, so this is the, and it basically just goes like that for three minutes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, let's go for a point and a half. I think that's a break. It's maybe a little bit sh uh, slow. Can we, can you just up it a bit? Can we like run it through Audacity or something? Sure. Because uh, it will sound a bit lame if it's this show. But it was a true skip the line. And also, you can give people, it's like having a good show in LA is how you go on shows. You yeah. give people spots on your show and they give you spots on theirs. Yeah, um, that's right. So now if I go to oh, like, We've done this. Like, if I go to Dallas, I get on. I go to Denver, I get on. So, so if I go to London, I've been at the comedy store there. Great. It's a, it's a step above me. I uh, I do not play the comedy store. I think I did an open spot there years ago, and the guy hey, was in like, London? "Yeah." The guy was like, "I think I overran," which he hates. Um, but I was having a good set, and so I was like, oh, "This is fine." But um, no, this was not fine. And then I go back, and he's like, "Right, okay, do um, do ten minutes." I did ten minutes, ending with a rap, and it went really well. And he's like, "Yeah, but we want to know if you can um." do 10 minutes like without the rap and i was like okay fine so i did another 10 minutes and they were like yeah but we didn't feel like it had a big finisher i'm like yeah because i finished with the rap like if i'm doing 20 minutes 
I, I, I closed with a rap. And that was years ago. Hmm. And so now I'm just like, and I'll, I'll, I'll play that when I'm famous. <laughs> I'll, I'll ask you this after the, the rap, but uh, I, I want to find out just as the last thing, like how your career is changing now that you're getting big on YouTube. Mm. So we'll figure it out. Okay, so, so... Is this being amplified? Yeah, because it's going through the monitor. Okay, cool. Are you that, okay not going to have a problem with... No. Cool. Okay. Okay, so so Chris, we've got one, two, three, four people, including me, in the room. Um, it's a heavy-duty operation. So <laughs> you've, got, you've got an audience here. I want you to do... <laughs> an audience. Because I talked about adrenaline before. This isn't... I'm very comfortable with all of you This guys. is a very tough audience. We've got <laughs> Steve Cohen, who's connected Hi. to everybody in media. We've got Eric and Jay, who's who's recorded thousands of rappers. Now the uh, adrenaline's pumping. <laughs> ah, don't mess this up, Chris. It's your one shot. <laughs> so 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 do do your thing, freestyle. Okay, so freestyle rap. Um, so we're gonna take some suggestions. I always request that they not be food, animals, because it's just very boring. Uh, people always say the same things. But you can, if you, people can be specific, right? Someone was, you know, like the mantis shrimp. Like that's an allowable animal if you want to be like that. Um, and don't be too obvious. Don't, and I'll be honest with you, if I've had the suggestion, I have like good recall on this. And this is like, you know, 10 years of, well, more than that of freestyling. I don't take the same suggestion twice. It's super lame and lazy. You could do that and be the best freestyle rapper with your scripted verses. But why do that? It's not fun. And I do this because it's fun. Uh, so I'll be honest with you. If you're like, oh, the queen or Brexit or Trump, don't say those. Um, Let's get some suggestions. So I'll kind of take it in turns, one from each of you. Um, so if you have one, raise your... Yeah, yeah. Venus volcanism. Venus volcanism. So I know what Venus is. Volcanism, is this a Star Trek thing? No, what is it? That's the um, vol volcanic activity. The, oh, oh, volcanism. Okay, sorry. Okay, cool, cool. <laughs> so yeah, vo volcanic activities on, on the planet Venus. Amazing. That's a great suggestion. Okay, let's get another one. PlayStation. Playstations. Yeah, boy. I like it. I like it. Do you have a particular favorite? Sorry? Do you have a particular favorite? Like which, which God console? Of War. Oh, game? Okay, God of War. Cool. Yeah. Cool, we can do that. I'm glad he said one. Um, Malaysia. Malaysia. <laughs> nice. Malaysia. PlayStation with focusing on God of War and volcanoes on Venus. James. <laughs> I, I got to say the James Altucher show. <laughs> So, so egotistical. Okay, cool. Um, this then will be... A, see, people are going to think like, oh, he probably expected to say that. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Uh, this will be a freestyle rap. That is a rap made up on the spot based on all those things. Uh, Venus, Volcanism, the PlayStation and God of War, Malaysia and the James Altucher show. Uh, and it's, it's completely improvised, completely unscripted and never to be seen again. And uh, if we drop that beat, let's uh, do this. It's Calvin Hill. If we can pump it a little bit louder as well, please. This is the tension is building. These little synths. Rats, you never seen this. Let me spit off hot like I go on Venus. Blowing out the cold air down below. I'm a pyroclastic flow on the volcano. Even though it's got no atmosphere, even when I'm up here. The sulfur in the air, make sure you stand clear. Sulfurous like a fart when I'm eating beans. Volcanic activity, the lights of which you've never seen before. I am one past Mercury. I'd like to spin around, yeah. Don't desert me, my knowledge about the solar system. Punch hard like a piston, yeah. 
you might think I miss them, the planet But I never plan it though I make it up malleable like the Play-Doh You can see me erupting like St. Helens Mount Helena, Vesuvius I go better, I move over Words never phase you I'm in KL, Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia I'm with my friends, I'm feeling so pretty People in Singapore think you're shitty But I disagree, I like the country If I say anything about the monarchy They're on the hunt for me They will send for the royal guard Yes, you know I got censored When I went to Malaysia, I did a great show But before the thing, yes, they wanted to know I had to write my whole routine out Which is hard, cause words just spit out I didn't say anything about the king and the queen Which was so damn lucky it would have been obscene They would have clapped me in irons, hung me upside down But at least you can spit chewy on the town In Singapore, the chewing gum goes down low It's fun to be here on the JA show I'll touch her like I'm touching the birds That move their heads 180 and observe that's an I'll touch upon. I knew I had one for you. It's really cool, yeah. Not a lawyer, but got the mind of one learning new things. You want to tell comedy, you want to spew things like jokes. So you buy in the comedy club. All the guests coming on, yeah. Getting that rub, it's a handshake. Sitting round all the table. Podcast row on the mugs, I'm able. Wearing a shirt with your own brand on. This is so nice. Call me Brandon. Dick Camillo, cause I got the freestyle flow. He was a great rapper from CKY years ago. That was the Jackass relation. Last one, I'm sitting back playing PlayStation. And one thing, you know I am the boss. The button's not an X, the button is a cross. Isn't that weird when they came out with the fact we know the circle square and triangle, they're taking it back. I like to play those games, the ones that are easier. I like to play sports, MLB and FIFA, but the one is the best. Number four, after the first trilogy, we had the God of War. It's Kratos and his son go to find the gods. I've only played the third one, but what a fit bod he had in that. Having sex with Aphrodite, goddess of beauty, vagina real tighty. Try and keep it nicely, but now he's much older. Getting all the money, getting all of the gold. They're like Ambrosia, yeah, that's the food of the deities. When they're on Olympus, oh, what a travesty. If the giants come up and bring them back down. I brought my PlayStation to the New York town. I play it in my hotel room so much mod media that I consume and now we got the PS Plus in November, the game's outlast too, yeah you should remember, what a weird thing to end a rap on, the PS Plus game that is coming up in November, it's outlast 2 and I believe a game set in feudal Japan where you are a samurai, but I can't remember the name of that one, um, that was <laughs> that right. rap there, that yeah great, thank you stacking so, it with a knowledge rather than punchlines, and so just just each line, you're like, uh, you don't, before you start the line, you don't know what you're going to no, say. No, people are like, oh, it's so amazing how you can think ahead. I never think ahead. Uh, it just, it just comes up. And, um, and if you want to learn this, what's like the two rules you would suggest? So, two rules I would suggest. Um, one of the, the best things you can do is listen to a huge variety of beats and just rap over them, right? One thing I try not to get, so because I, since I put the YouTube videos up, I used to use the same beat for like three years. I'd use Usher and Lil Jon's Yeah, and I'd rap over that. Now, what I like now is every night I'm using a new beat. Huh. Sometimes, if I'm doing three shows, I might use three beats because if a rap is good, I'll you know, record them. If it's good, it's going up online. I don't really want to use the same beat on it. Um, 
And rapping over more beats improves your flow, mixes you up, different speeds. Certain things suit your voice more as well. Like this was much more like my standard voice. If I'm rapping over like grime beats, I might get lower in my voice and sound more like I'm from, you know, London or something, rap like this. Um, and then, you know, if if I want to, like, there's some beats that I'll rap like in a more high pitched urgency voice and I'm coming at you hard and it, it's it's a real nice mix. And so like when I, I live stream on Twitch and I, people just suggest beats and they'll throw things at me like, try this one, try this one. Um, so that's that's one rule. Mix your beats up. Don't get steady, um, which I guess is kind of like playing on hard, right? It can be comfortable to coast a lot on one beat. Um, I guess... My second one, I don't think this counts because this is me just being like, consume all media, like read everything, learn everything because you need the raw materials to turn into it. And I guess you do actually. I guess you need to know words like, you know, there's loads of words that end in I-O-N. You know, you can rhyme situation and consternation and constellation and you should know those all. It's like if you want to play Scrabble and be the best, you have to learn all the two-letter words. Um, So... Yeah, for this, because the thing that, but that, this is purely my approach to freestyle. This is me being like, I like to be intellectual about it. I like to know stuff. And I think it, it elevates it past just being like, because sometimes you see people freestyle and they're just like, it's like giving words, they're like cars. And you're like, come on, guys. Well, what about getting into that flow state though? Like, is that due to just enormous just like in your free time or when you're walking around the city, are you Not rapping? for a long time though. I haven't done that for years mm-hmm. um, because my being on stage is my practice now mm-hmm. um, and I don't warm up in a, a way beyond like a vocal warm up. Um, I, the more you do it, the more comfortable you get. Like I, I'm sure if you look back at my old freestyles, I'm definitely way better now because I've just done it more uh, and I'm more comfortable. And I would say I get into the flow state much more frequently now. Like so much free, so much more than I used to because it's it's weird, isn't it? It's a challenge, but it's not a challenge. I'm on sta- I'm on I feel at home on stage. I feel very comfortable. I feel like I interact better. On stage, I'm like the best version of me. Like off stage, I feel very awkward. I feel very unfunny. I, I'm not that social. Whereas on stage, I'm like, I feel like I could take on anyone like comedians feel this all the time someone will heckle them and they'll just like slam them down and then you realize you probably shouldn't have upset that person they they're mean they're gonna beat you up um which is why i like comedy clubs with burly security um yeah (laughs) and then now that you've been putting stuff on youtube uh have you seen your career take off in other ways like this has been like a couple of weeks i i guess one thing that's been nice is, I mean, first off, like people, you have to admit it, like YouTube, if you monetize your videos, you can make money. And it's, I think, one of the great worries of any creative, I was going to say young creative, but any creative is making money while doing it. Um, and I think we maybe have this idea that, oh, working two jobs and doing stand-up at night is a great thing because actually, you know, it's your passion and it has to work. But actually it's really nice when you can just devote yourself to your passion. I'm very lucky that I was able to make money from it from quite an early on. And so I didn't have to worry about exhausting myself in the daytime, then going to gigs at night. But I live in LA, it's super expensive. Um, My wife and I plan to have a family at some point. And so it's, you know, I'm always like, oh, 
how can I make sure we have enough money to start doing that? So in an ideal world, more and more people see the videos and that, you know, makes some money. And these videos going viral is like being a nice little bonus before Christmas. Like most of it's going to go into savings, but, you know, I feel like I can treat my wife's family and my family to nicer gifts. I guess there's been like more inquiries. You know, there are people... Yeah, in, I saw in, you on YouTube. Yeah, there are people in, inquiring. I mean, that's it. Things like this is, is delightful because this is such a, a pleasure to to be on. But things like this one guy was like, hey, I could, if you want to work as a public speaker teaching sales in Vegas five days a week for the next year and make the most money you've ever seen, he's like, I can, I can do that for you. I'm like, thank you, but no, thank you. I don't want to do that. Um, people, my favorite one was a guy who went, you ever considered getting a personal trainer? I was like, you know, this just sounds like you call me fat, right? He's like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm offering you my services as a, as a personal trainer. Like, just, just in case you want, I think you're really funny. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Um, so it's opened up like new avenues, yeah, even just unexpected. Ha having, yeah, having, is it my, my goal has always been, I, I love stand-up comedy. I love performing it. I love being on stage. I've said that. I would love to be able to tour all over America, doing shows, because people are messaging me. They're like, come here. Come, please come here. When will you be here? And I'm like, you are one person that knows me in that place. I would love to come there. I need 100 people in that place to bring me there. I'll come there. You know, I, comedy is traveling all over the country doing shows for no money. Yeah, if, if, I, if I'm not losing money, I will come to a place. I, I want to do it. I, want, I, I love traveling. I love experiencing the world. It's one of the great joys of this job. If I can build up an audience that will come and see me, and YouTube is a great way to do that. Foil Arms and Hog are a sketch group. They just finished their, their US tour. They have, you know, a third of a million YouTube subscribers. That's, that's how they built up their audience. They put a new sketch out every week. That people love their sketches. They're funny. People go see their live shows. And now they can just do that. You could do that every year. They come from that sketch. And that, that makes you a living. What a treat that would be if I could go on the road, go into all these new places, have enough money that I could take my wife with me um, and do these, do these fun things. That's what I'm hoping it will be. And even if it's not, like it's been so fun walking up on stage at comedy clubs in the last couple of weeks. And when I say I'm going to do the rap, I see people in the audience do that thing and they go, oh, wait, he's that guy from the video or people driving to shows to see me. And so you, and you hear it, you know that. Like when people know who you are, they, you hear them cheer louder and it makes the rest of the crowd cheer louder. Mm. It's one thing I'm always interested in with very famous comedians. Like I did a gig and Ray Romano dropped in and the crowd went insane, so insane. And I was like, that must feel good. Like that's, you've had an impact on their lives. Like they feel fond of you. And you, throughout your set, they're having a great time. And then you leave and they're just like, oh my God. And you know they're going to tell everyone we got to see this person. And I, it's a converse thing to like, I, one of the things I hate more than anything else in the world is when I make people feel bad. I really, really hate it. Um, like if I've inconvenienced someone accidentally or if I've upset someone or if I've like said a joke and I see someone upset by it. It makes me feel so shitty inside, which is why I, I, I very much steer away from like anything controversial or offensive. I, I, 
it, it, I have trouble sleeping. It hurts me. I'm like, I've, I spoiled someone's day. Mm. Um, and then the converse is like, I love when people are laughing. Like that Forbes gig afterwards, people were like taking photos and like this, do you mind like, do you mind if I tweet this? Can I, this is amazing. This, oh, this is so cool. Can I take a video? And I'm like, oh, like I made your day. Isn't that awesome that I did that with this stupid thing that I started doing in my bedroom when I was an idiot teenager? Um, I guess that's the ideal thing though. Yeah. Yeah. It's, comedians chat about this a lot. It's, it always starts as a hobby. I think. I don't think most of us start it going, this is what I'm going to do. And then at some point, it might be after your first gig, it becomes the thing you want to do. And then we talk about like, so what's our hobbies? Like, that's it. I don't know what my hobby is. Um, but we get to do what is, to me, the best job. Which is making people like, you've done a lot of jobs. Like, where, what, where do you rank doing comedy for you? Like, what do you, how much enjoyment do you get out of that compared to other things? Uh, huge, because... For each type of job, there's a different way you get dopamine out of it. Mm -hmm. And dopamine becomes addictive. This is my dopamine addiction at the moment. Yeah. And I have no goal for it, but I like to I don't like to do something unless I'm getting better at it. And so I'm just I study, I try to get better. And the more I'm on stages, the better I get. The more I watch specials, the better I get. The more I talk about it with friends, the better I get. So it becomes this. For me right now, it's basically number one because it's it's my my addiction. And you you keep getting better at it. I think I don't know how many things there are. It's interesting here you talk about chess being like you kind of get worse as you age. I think with comedy, you just get better. Now you have to work, right? But the Comedy and Magic Club, they book comedians who um, they're so funny. And these are guys who've been doing it for so long and they're so funny. And you can tell they keep writing every week and they their material is about topical things. Like seeing Alan Havey, who's just one of my favorites, talk about like do material about identifying as a, a as a, like a straight man. And like it works because the audience is like, oh, what's what's this guy gonna say? He's old at that church. Like, no, no, he's making smart, funny jokes about well, this. Well, it's funny about him because when when Gnome Dorman, the mm -hmm. uh, owner of the Comedy Cellar, was on this podcast when he was a kid. And this, I guess, back in the 80s or early 90s, he was saying how, uh, you know, I said, who were the people who really stood out at the Comedy Cellar back then that you just knew? And he said, the first name he said was Alan Havey. I think so many people said John Stewart, I think, said uh, Alan he Havey said, had the best set. He'd it, seen. Gnomes, the second name Noam said was John Stewart. Yeah. Um, Alan is amazing. Um, so funny and so nice. When I met him, was like, it's so it was so sweet. Maybe I and mean, this is maybe something I was just reading into. I turned up at the Comedy and Magic Club, and he was on, and I watched him. I was like, oh, this guy's fucking incredible. And then he was like slightly dismissive towards me, just in like kind of, who's this? Why is he going on last? Uh -huh. And then like after a couple of, I think he watched my set and was just like, just friendly and nice. And I was like. I don't know. I feel I felt taken under his wing. He's met my wife and just oh, is great. nice. Remembers her name, and then has been talking about how it's very hard to remember comics, girlfriends, and wives' names and stuff. And he's like, "No, I remember your wife." <laughs> um, and I'm like, "This feels nice." And I'm sure he won't be listening to this, so I can talk nice things about him. Um, but it was also weird for me because, like, for me, he was the guy from Mad Men 
Yeah. He was literally voted the most hated character in any TV show during the seasons he was on. Yeah. And I like watching him, I was like, I hate this guy. Why is he? My wife and I were just like, this guy is a piece of shit. He's the worst. And then I'm like, oh, that's him. It's, but yeah, I, I really admire him, Jack Cohen, who used to be like, um, uh, I can't remember if it's Letterman or Leno's writer and warm up. Like, you know, he's an older guy still working on new material. Like, watching him do material about like Trump and like do material about Trump that was original and good. Not easy. Yeah. Um, seeing all these comics and going, they've been doing it for 35 years. This is how funny they are. And it's exciting when I chat to my friends who are like my level and I'm like, you know, like 10 years, right? Like, yeah, like, yeah, wow. Isn't it weird when you only just get good? So like, and if you've been doing it for like how many, how long? It's now? like five. Yeah. And you cut the line because you have the public speaking experience, but like, and it's interesting hearing you talk about winding down on it. Not that I'm winding down yeah. yet. I'm just thinking eventually I have to do it. But you, be... you but you don't, do you? I don't know. I wrestle with this. I honestly, I, I literally talk to my therapist about this because I'm because I I say, okay, this week I'm not gonna go up six times, I'm gonna go up twice. And then I end up going up six times or eight times. <laughs> okay, I see that that can be a problem. I I can talking about the dopamine, when I do the rap. It was a conscious decision at one point I took. I was like, I, I used to feel bad about this. I used to, the applause be going and I'd be, I would worry that me being like standing there and taking it would look like a dick move because I'm British, very modest. Like you do something good, you're like, oh no, it wasn't that good. Please calm down. And then I started like, no, let me do this. And I'd do the rap and I'd just stand on stage and like just enjoy it. And like even recently I've been like, I'd finish the rap. If it was a really good rap, I'd like, jump about a little bit like just like like a little happy boy who'd like got a big laugh and then i went for the applause to die down and i've like absorbed it and then i go thank you very much i'm chris turner good night and then i get a second round of applause and it's me just being like give me more i just uh, uh, absorbing all this yeah because you, you because i'm, like, I'm like that's what i that's what i wanted and it's so nice and i have that and i'm i i could do one or two shows a week if it's like a big room of people um, more more than that. I mean, I I don't know if there's like a ceiling for me. Huh. Um, this is this the longest end to a podcast ever <laughs> that I've turned it into. I apologize. Well, well, no, that's great. This has been so informative to me, and it's so much fun. And I've been been enjoying your videos. My whole family's been enjoying your videos. So sweet. I'm so glad you you responded to my outreach. And Thank you. Hey, let's hang out again. Let, let me know lovely. next time you're back in the city. That would be lovely. So thank you, Chris. Thank you. Chris Turner on YouTube. Are you on Instagram? I am Chris Turner Comedy on Instagram, Chris PJ Turner on YouTube, and uh, on Twitch as well at Chris Turner Comedy. Those are the ones to find me on. Excellent. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you. Thank you.